$221 on hitting? Trout, Harper, Arenado, Votto, and Trevor Story on the roster? We'll talk about that and more with Paul Sporer from Fangraphs next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 7th. It's show number 13 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll be talking with Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast about his ultra-hitter-heavy strategy in tout head-to-head, some bold predictions, some free agent pitchers to watch, his studs and duds, and more. We'll also have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Nick Franklin joining the Brewers, some changes in the Mets pitching staff and more, and from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at Nick Franklin and his surprising departure from Tampa, Felix Hernandez's surprising departure from his start, and more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, the marquee matchup is Chicago White Sox left-hander Jose Quintana at home Sunday versus the Twins. And the Sunday surprise, Colorado Southpaw Tyler Anderson at home for the Dodgers. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about using behavioral economics in fabbing. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Our first week is nearly in the books. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off as always the National League report, and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. How's your first week going so far? So-so, you know, guys in and out of the lineup, and that's that's to be expected in the first week. And You know, guys that you expect to play, play regularly, so up in one game because they're not quite ready yet, all those sorts of things. Well, let's lead things off with a story that surprised a lot of us. Uh, in just a few minutes, when we go to the American League, I'll be asking Jock Thompson why Tampa cut versatile switch-hitting utility man Nick Franklin. But this story has National League ramifications as well, because Franklin was claimed and signed by the Brewers. BaseballHQ.com analyst Tom Kephart covered the story in playing time today. What's going on in Milwaukee with Nick Franklin? Well, you know, I'm sure that the Brewers had really no no idea of exactly how they're going to use Franklin, but... He is so versatile and has such interesting skills that he's the kind of guy that, that uh, frequently you want on a, on a roster. He can play the outfield. He can play various infield positions. So uh, Nick Franklin looks like a very interesting sort of ball player. In fact, we were kind of, at, at one point, he was sort of being touted as, is this, the year, this year's Jose Ramirez? And he doesn't have a role to allow him to be that yet. Uh, but uh, this is a guy that uh, has some power. He has some speed. The problem is his batting eye is very problematic, and that can can be uh, a, pro- a a difficulty uh, in that he still strikes out too much, but uh, really hits left-handed pitching very well. Um, so the kind of guy that it's interesting to have on a roster can fill in a lot of places, and I can certainly see why the Brewers might have wanted to sign him. 
You know, career-wise, he struggled making contact, but in 2016, we saw his contact rate rise a little bit. I think the problem with his eye ratio, which is a pretty good precursor of power, uh, has continued to be that he just doesn't draw enough walks, and that's going to be a problem in uh, any place that he goes because if you don't walk, that means pitchers know they don't have to throw you strikes, and that really has an effect all the way down the line. Yeah, it does. I mean, back in his first year in the league in 2013, he had a 10% walk rate, and it's gone downhill since that time and so that's the that's been the problem contact rate was up last year and that's a really good thing but uh the the walk rate continues to be an issue uh and continues to keep him with a low a low on base average nick we mentioned that nick franklin is a switch hitter but in fact last year his playing time came entirely from the left-hand side of the plate versus right-handed pitching, which is the good side of the platoon, of course. Uh, He had 137 at-bats out of his 174 total against right-handers and produced an 828 OPS against them. That's that's really eye-opening when you look at an 828 OPS against right-handed pitching. And so there's something something there that could make him very useful on that that side of the platoon if you can find the the right guy to pair him with. On the other side, Hitting against left-handers, only a 554 OPS, which uh, uh, certainly is pretty mediocre. Staying in Milwaukee, Tom Kephart also reported that right-handed starter Junior Guerra is going to miss four to six weeks, possibly more, with a strained calf muscle. And listen to this. Who's joining the Milwaukee rotation but left-hander Tommy Malone? I didn't even realize he was still out there. <laughs> right, huh? It's one of, one of those guys with a history that you don't, you don't know is still working. You know, Tommy Malone is... Uh, one of those guys you've got to look at is sort of in, in the mid-tier of, of, of possible pitching outcomes, kind of a 60 BPV, 60 to 80 BPV throughout his career. Uh, last year was not very good at all, a 5.71 earned run average, uh, but a 4.73 expected earned run average. So uh, there's something there with Tommy Malone, but not, not something you want to jump on right away, but certainly the kind of guy you want to keep your eye on. He has some experience. He's had a couple of very good years in the majors. Uh, and back at 3.92 ERA as, as recently as 2015. So certainly someone to watch, although I don't think someone I'd be adding to my roster uh, immediately. The problem with guys like Malone for me, Nick, is this. You mentioned that his base performance value has ranged from 60 to 80, and my problem is 60 is not that useful, and 80 is pretty useful. And the, the problem is you don't know whether you're going to get the 60 or the 80, and as he gets older, you start thinking probably going to be closer to 60 than 80, and that's that's a consideration. And, and part of that is because uh, he just doesn't have the fastball. and his Fastball's in 88, 86, somewhere around there, and he doesn't strike out a lot of guys as a result which means he has to be very, very precise because he's got very little margin for error. And if he gets outside the margin for error, then your ERA is going to take a hit. Right. Uh, he's certainly one of those kind of guys who's, who's got uh, a guy who, who'll be on and off uh, one from game to game, depending upon how things are working. And as you said, very, very small margin for error here. So if he's off, he could be off very badly. And Nick, one of the best features about BaseballHQ.com as a website for fantasy baseball players is the daily call-ups report. Every time a minor leaguer gets called up, he gets a fairly comprehensive uh, overview in this call-ups column. And uh, the call-ups boys, our BaseballHQ.com scouts, looked at left-hander Brent Suter, who was called up from AAA to take Malone's spot in the bullpen in Milwaukee. And just so people know, again, not a lot of velocity here, 85 to 88 on the fastball, but he throws a lot of strikes. His minor league dom rate was around seven strikeouts per nine. We should expect that to drop at the major league level. But he has a good mix of pitches, and if he can improve the curveball, he could actually be one of those sneaky, what do they call them, crafty left-handers. 
Yeah, he very definitely could be, especially in a bullpen situation where he's only going to see guys uh, one one time through the lineup. Uh, that could make that that kind of thing even even more useful. So certainly someone to take a look at. And again, the BaseballHQ.com scouts say that Brent Suter could be number five starter material, could get a few spot starts for the Brewers if anything else happens to the Brewers' rotation. In New York, right-handed starter Seth Lugo was diagnosed with, uh uh-oh, partially torn ulnar collateral ligament. That's usually the track towards Tommy John surgery, although the team has said not yet. But he is going to miss months of action. Uh, Lugo and this injury got plenty of coverage from BaseballHQ.com. Greg Pyron mentioned it in Playing Time Tomorrow. Phil Hertz in Playing Time Today. Even Stephen Nickrand in his starting pitchers column about six starters. So, Nick, we have Seth Lugo out. Stephen Matz is going to be out for at least a month. Looks like the immediate beneficiary will be Rafael Montero. Now, there's a name from the past, isn't it? Rafael Montero, one of the best prospects in the, in the Mets organization a few years ago. Uh, had a horrible, horrible 2016, a 5.47 ERA, uh, 7.5 DOM, uh, bad control, um, really, really struggled. So, and then he came up to the majors, got 19 innings with the Mets, and was even worse at 8.05 ERA. Uh, DOM was a bit better, but couldn't find the plate, uh, walking 7.5 guys per nine innings. So, uh, he had a very good spring. 20 innings pitched, 15 hits, 4 in runs, 23 strikeouts. Uh, so that begins to make you, you remember those, uh, that, that good prospect, uh, vibe that he had a few years ago. And he made up way, making the club as a reliever because Lugo went on the disabled list. Uh, certainly that puts him in a situation where if he continues to pitch well, he could, uh, make a real, uh, real case for that, uh, fifth starter role, uh, or sixth starter role or fifth starter role as other injuries occur, as we know they will. Yeah, this is an interesting sort of case. I like these players who come up as prospects. They flame out. Uh, BaseballHQ.com, we call it the Alex Rodriguez 10 steps to stardom. You know, a much-hyped rookie comes up, fails, gets sent back to the minors, bounces around, and then when he comes back, all of a sudden, things fall into place. And, you know, when when you're talking about pitchers, you're talking about young guys it's a maturing process that has to take place and maybe if you get if you catch him at the right time there's a real opportunity to lock in especially in a keeper league so a guy like Montero could be interesting because he does have that prospect pedigree and as you said a pretty nice spring with a 177 ERA a 113 whip and a dominance rate over 10 strikeouts per nine that's pretty good stuff I know it's only spring training but yeah, but, I mean, you've got that prospect pedigree. It's certainly worth looking at. And sometimes all it takes is, is as you said, a little maturing or maybe a uh, the right comment by the pitching coach about how he needs to tweak something uh, that can cha- turn things around for, for someone who's got some real talent. So uh, Rafael Montero is certainly a guy to keep, keep your eye on, uh, especially after how good he looked uh, a few years ago. And as far as we know, there's no, nothing there that's causing uh, a, a change in performance. Uh, certainly a guy, a guy to watch. And as you said, I like these guys. Uh, it takes people a while to adjust to the major leagues. We've got to remember that. And as fantasy managers, I think we're too quick to drop young guys uh, because they uh, they don't make it the first time around. Yeah, there's uh, there are also cultural adaptations that have to be made, which is tough for a young uh, a young fellow. I teach uh, young people, some of them from abroad. 
in college here, and uh, some of them, they're pretty good students coming in, and they just struggle because, you know, there's a language barrier of sorts, there's some cultural adaptations that have to be made, and plus, you know, learning how to, how to be a writer or a technical writer in college is hard, but gosh, you know, throwing curveballs past Nolan Arenado, that's harder. It is, and then you you know you think about I think I would not want to go to Japan and suddenly without without any command of the language or understanding of the language, uh, and try to perform on a baseball field. It would be a real a real handicap. So certainly it makes a big difference. This whole Lugo Matz injury situation also gives a little more job security to Robert Gazelman. We've talked about him already on the show this year. He was covered in daily call-ups as well with all of this going on. I heard lots of chatter, so did you, about Robert Gazelman during spring training. So what should we expect now that his job seems more secure? You know, this is a guy with a, with a really a very decent kind of pedigree. Uh, he seems to have a, uh, a new pitch, a plus slider that's a new development for him. Uh, fastball gets up to 96 miles an hour, uh, late with late movement, uh, getting a curve that's very solid as a third pitch, uh, working on a changeup, getting ground balls. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're seeing some development with Robert Gesellman, uh, that, that really could, if he gets an opportunity and it looks as though this situation in the rotation will make him the fifth starter to begin the year and probably increases the job security with Lugo not coming back anytime soon, uh, he could be very useful in, in uh, certainly in National League only leagues and maybe in uh, uh, in in other leagues as well. Had a terrific spring, a 169 ERA, 108 WHIP. That's really good. His strikeout rate was over 10 strikeouts per nine, or right around strike 10 strikeouts per nine. He gets a lot of ground balls, Nick, and uh, with the increase in strikeout rates, that's a really good combination. We like those ground ball strikeout type guys. Yeah, we do. I mean, those ground ball strikeout type guys. Uh, think about it. They, they've got several ways of getting it out, and uh, they're not going to put the ball in the air so often that they get damaged by by fly balls and line drives that go askew. So uh, he's that, that's a good combination to have. And if he brings his walks down a little bit, uh, according to BaseballHQ.com scouts, his career minor league record for walks was around two and a half walks per nine innings. It's been a little bit above three in his major league career. But if he can get that down to that two and a half or 2.25 rate, he could end up being a number three starter, which would be terrific if you happen to own him at a buck or two as a, as a keeper or, or dynasty player. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, there certainly is that potential there. Uh, he's not going to be a top of the rotation starter ever. He doesn't have the stuff for that, but he could be a very strong number three uh, down the road. Finally, Nick Bullpens analyst Doug Dennis at BaseballHQ.com had a column uh, lately called 80 Names to Know. I like this kind of thing because he basically just looked at the 80 best relievers in Major League Baseball. And while, of course, some of the names are like Aroldis Chapman and that ilk of, of pitcher, we know those names. But some of these names might not be so well known. One of them, Miami reliever Kyle Baraclaw. Yeah, Kyle Baraclaw had a terrific uh, 2016, a 2.85 ERA but even better, 113 strikeouts in 73 innings pitched and a 135 BPV, uh, the kind of guy you want on your radar. I really, really like this column of Doug's. It was a, it was a terrific column because it does exactly what you said. It lays out uh, uh, the top, the top 80 relievers in baseball, some of whom you will never have heard of. Uh, but Doug kind of lets you know what their prospects are. And, uh, is this a guy that might stumble into some saves and what's exactly going on here? So, I highly recommend that column of Doug's to take a look at if you're looking for any kind of a relief pitcher to add to your roster. 
I was thinking about this as well while I was reading Doug's column, and of course it has obvious Keeper League and Dynasty League ramifications because even if you're not in the hunt this year, you might want to start stocking up on those long-term guys who could come into work. And Barraclough in in this season is behind A.J. Ramos, which is not exactly trying to surpass, you know, Craig Kimbrell or or one of the top closers. Ramos has struggled, and Barraclough's uh, uh, got some really nice projections. But even in this year, he's the kind of guy I like to have on my reserve. I play in a one-year league, and even though he's not going to do me any good next year or the year after because I'm not going to have the same roster, I like having guys like him because it allows me to put in a safe alternative when I need to stream a pitcher, a starting pitcher, out of my lineup for a week. Right. It's a very a very good thing to be able to do is to to have a, a very uh, a reliever that you can count on to get a few innings and a few strikeouts in a week when you know that one of your starters may may blow up because of he's pitching in Colorado or, or has the wrong kind of matchup for that particular week. Interesting stuff as always, Nick. Thanks a million. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups analyst, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's go over to the American League and Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the pod. Hey, PD. How you doing this opening week? Well, you know, it's been interesting. I have a bunch of starters. I think I've had five or six starts so far this week, all of them quality starts. I think my aggregate ERA is under two or right around two, and I've got one win to show for it. Yeah, I know. Huh? I, I, in uh, one of my dynasty leagues, I have Mookie Betts and Chris Bryant, and I'm in next to last place. Go figure. And the other thing that goes on is I deliberately drafted a team that I thought would be very strong in stolen bases. When I came away, my projections were that I'd win the category pretty easily, and uh, I'm the only team in the league with zero stolen bases so far. Yeah. Hey, Yeah. opening week. Always fun. Gotta hate opening week, but I'm in third place, I think, right now, so I'll take that over being like 11th place or 12th place or something like that. Yep, absolutely. Jock, you cover the American League West pretty regularly, both for playing time today and playing time tomorrow at BaseballHQ.com, and you warned us here on the show earlier in March that the Seattle rotation was just loaded with injury risk, and maybe we ought to pay some attention to depth because at some point you said it was going to come into play, and turns out some point was before opening day. Drew Smiley went down with a strained flexor tendon. That looks like six to eight weeks at the very least if he doesn't end up doing Tommy John. On opening day, Felix Hernandez left his start early, slightly strained groin, and now Felix says he'll be ready to go next time out, but doesn't this strike you as a wait-and-see kind of situation, and what does this overall look like for Seattle and for fantasy owners? Yeah, it's really interesting, and 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 we haven't even you haven't even mentioned uh, uh, in your in your intro, Giovanni Gallardo, who, I mean, there, there's a real question whether he's even good enough to stay in this rotation uh, for the entire year. So, this is not a good thing. Uh, what's happening to um, to Seattle? And there's not a lot of real obvious uh, MLB ready depth uh, behind them. Um, Cuban import Ariel Miranda is going to be taking. Uh, um, Smiley's place in the rotation. Um, he actually had a pretty good September last uh, last year. He he had a 2.62 ERA in six starts. But if you look under the cover, there was a 19% hit rate involved. Uh, he had a 400. He had a 4.57 expected ERA. He's a he's a fly ball baller with a uh, a sub 10 uh, swinging strike rate, sub 10%. I'm not sure he's going to last over the long term and. Uh, Behind that, uh, wow! I, I, I just, I just don't see what's going to happen there. 
Yeah, when I first looked at Ariel Miranda, I thought, hey, you know, uh, I was also drawn to that September performance, six starts. He was a uh, 262 RA, as you mentioned, 087 whip. That's really good. His strikeout rate looked pretty decent at around seven. But his overall base performance value at BaseballHQ.com, which is a compilation single number that reflects all of his skills, was 61, which is really not what you're looking for in a solid starter. No, it's not. And uh, there's, if, if, again, anyone can get lucky in a small sample. We talk about small samples all the time. And in September, you're pitching against uh, depleted lineups. Uh, this was really a case of that because there just doesn't seem to be a lot of skills under the hood. Now, maybe as a number five guy in a decent pitching environment, he can hold his own for a little while. But I don't see a lot of fantasy value there, and there's plenty of risk. Well, considering all the pitching time that they've lost through losing Drew Smiley, what happens if Felix Hernandez is on the DL or has to miss more time than uh, he says he's going to miss? Is there any depth here on the 40-man roster level? Well, I think the next guys that we're looking at are probably Dylan Overton, who just came off a of paternity leave. Uh, he had a pretty good spring, but I, I don't know if you remember Overton. He was pitching with Oakland last year, and he just got slaughtered in his MLB debut. Uh, I think he gave up something like 13 home or 12 home runs in 24 innings last year. Um, he's obviously better than this. He's a command guy, but again, uh, another another back end guy who who hasn't. Uh, hasn't really proven himself at the major league level. The, the Mariners also have Chris Heston, who, if you remember, a couple of years ago, he had a pretty intriguing first half, rookie first half with San Francisco. I think he pitched a no-hitter. Um, his skills were still a little shaky, and then he collapsed in the second half. Um, this was back in 2015. And then last year, he was completely injury-prone, and he didn't show anything when he was healthy. So, uh, uh, wow, I'm just, wow, I'm just not seeing it right now in, uh, in Seattle. And they have aspirations to be in the playoffs, and they're going to have to do something here. I wonder if Jerry Depoto is going to try to trade some prospects for some halfway decent pitching, but there's uh, usually not a lot of pitching out there, and you'll get a gun held to your head most times when you want to ask for it. I looked at Heston because I did remember that no-hitter, and in that 2015 season, he wasn't completely horrible. He was about a 4 or $5 player, I think. Most of these other guys have no track record to speak of at all. Um, is there anybody even beyond the 40-man uh, names that Seattle could plug in or maybe bring up later? Any potential help? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of unproven quantities that actually had uh, pretty pretty good springs. Uh, they have a guy named Andrew Moore. He he has some Double A experience, about 80, 90 innings. Uh, um, he, underwhelming velocity, but this guy was a two-time All-American um, who, who who dominated hitters with pinpoint command. Uh, uh, he posted a 2.65 ERA in Double A last year. Uh, he 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 didn't look overmatched in spring training. Um, um, he he threw um, eight and eight and, or he gave up five runs in ten innings. Uh, eight. Eight uh, to two strikeout to walk ratio, and and in Arizona that's pretty good. Uh, he could be in line later after Super Two, or certainly in the second half of the season uh, for for a back of the for a back of the rotation shot to see if his stuff can play up. Another guy named Max Povsey, uh, similar command, better velocity, might have a little better upside than Moore. Um, and he was unscored upon in his first ten innings of spring training. Another guy with some Double A experience. Both these guys are college products. Uh, uh, both have pitched well in the minors, but again, unproven guys who, if, if in a perfect world, Seattle doesn't want to bring them up until August. There's also a guy, Dan Altavilla. He he was uh, might be Altavilla actually. I don't I don't know for sure, but uh, he was a, a, a hot commodity on the first Tout Wars free agent in my American League only. There was a lot of bidding on on him, 
And, uh, boy, it's little wonder he's had a three games so far. He's got the Mariners' only win and uh, five strikeouts in three innings and no walks. That looks pretty attractive. Yeah, I wrote about him in uh, in my um, playing time tomorrow space when the uh, uh, Seattle bullpen started to go down. Uh, Steve Sishik is still... Uh, Still recouping from back surgery or hip surgery, and uh, Shea Simmons went down. He has a ligament strain. Um, Tony Zich is is also coming off of surgery. He's the only hard thrower other than Edwin Diaz, and now he's setting up Diaz. And, and Dan Altavilla is a big arm, and he really has looked good. I've been able to watch him a few times here. Um, this is a guy whose value could soar, particularly given the way this rotation is going to be taxed. Uh, hopefully they don't overwork him, but I really like Dan Altavilla in here. And, you know, you say he has a big arm, but it's on a small frame. He's only 5'11", 200 pounds, a pretty stocky build, and he's uh, hitting 100 mile an hour with his fastball. I always get a little concerned when guys that size are throwing 100 because it just doesn't seem like it can last. I think of, uh, you know, guys like Marcus Stroman who ends up with a knee injury and those shorter, stockier pitchers. I mean, back in the day they were something, but now uh, I prefer the longer, leaner look. Yeah, this is really kind of a point-in-time thing. If you're looking for help now, obviously relief pitchers come and go. So um, at least for now, um, Altavilla is a is. I know he's. I know he's in in both of my leagues. He's on a roster already. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how he progresses. Let's go to Toronto. Roberto Osuna has a neck injury and went on the 10-day DL, which has caused some problems for the Blue Jays' early bullpen depth. Now, all of a sudden, instead of Osuna, Grilly, Biagini, it's Grilly, Biagini, and whoever else finishing games for the Blue Jays. Anything here to watch? Anything of value when we're looking at guys like Grilly and Biagini? Well, yeah, depending on the depth of your league, and, and, and obviously uh, a lot dependent on Osuna's injury, Grilly's really a known commodity these days. He's, all, he's 40 years old now, he's had some closing experience, and he's still effective, at least in terms of racking up the Ks, but he's also injury and homer prone, so I'd personally... St- Dear clear of him, at least in the deep leagues that I play in. I kind of like uh, Joe um, Biagini. He, he's the um, uh, the other guy uh, setting up, who normally setting up Osuna, who's handling the late innings with Grilly. I think he could be one of those multi-inning, high-leverage, strikeout bullpen forces we're talking about. But I think, again, the critical thing here is Osuna's injury. Um, the club says it's just a nagging thing. He's going to be back soon. Could it become anything bigger, or, or, or are they just being judicious and using that 10-day DL rule now judiciously? Uh, I mean, you're, you're closer to Toronto than I am. I was actually hoping you might offer your two cents on this. Well, the club was saying all along that they were, they were acknowledging that Osuna was having these neck issues, uh, and they, but they said he'd be on the opening day roster, it's nothing big, and then all of a sudden he's not on the opening day roster, he's on this 10-day DL. Um, they say it's a neck injury, more like a strain or something from sleeping oddly on it. They haven't said why, but that's the inference that I've drawn from everything that they've said, is that it's not an actual... Uh, acute injury. It's just some kind of nagging pain, as you suggested. But here's the thing. I've had neck neck injuries before, and I sure wouldn't want to pitch in a major league ball game if I had that kind of really stiff, sore neck because your head moves around when you're pitching. I think this could go on a little longer than people think. And at that point, uh, Jock, I believe the question is, Who's going to be in that closer role, or are they going to go to some kind of committee? And there's one other knock-on effect here. They were talking earlier in spring training about moving Joe Biagini at some point into the rotation, and they were actually stretching him out and talking about maybe getting him in there, throwing a lot more innings. And, of course, that plan, as long as Osuna's on the shelf, so is the plan to stretch uh, Biagini out into a starter. 
Yeah, it's, it's interesting. These clubs are really getting taxed in their pitching early on. Uh, so, I, yeah, I guess the question is, um, do you think Biagini benefits from all of this, given that he's going to be in demand? And who else can benefit from this if, uh, if for example, Asuna is out longer? Well, presumably, if they thought Biagini could get more innings, they could do that either as a starter or as a, as you suggested, a high-leverage, multi-inning type guy, which could really help his overall numbers from a fantasy perspective if he goes from 65-70 innings up to closer to 100 in the Andrew Miller type mold. I think that that obviously is going to add to his value. Also, if I was, uh, and I am, looking at this whole situation, I wouldn't be sleeping on Joe Smith, a name with which I know you're familiar, former Angels reliever. Joe Smith has been sniffing around the edges and could get himself into the closer mix depending on what they do with Biagini in the long run. Now, I'm glad you mentioned Joe because Joe had a, a good stretch uh, before the Ernie Frieri area in uh, Anaheim. Seems like a long time ago where he actually saved a whole bunch of games over about a month and a half for the Angels. And and, and even though he's a soft tossing ground baller, he was uh, he, he really looked good in that role. So he has some experience. He's lost a little bit of skill since then or he's lost something because he hasn't been quite as good as he was those first couple of years with the Angels. Um, but yeah, I would I would be interested in looking at him as well. Jock, I talked earlier with uh, Nick in the National League segment a few minutes ago about the surprising cut of Nick Franklin, and of course he signed with Milwaukee, and that's what we talked about, but this also has effects in Tampa itself. Uh, you and I were fans of how well Nick Franklin played last year. He had a nice season and a really good spring, and all of a sudden, poof, he's gone. So what does this tell us about Nick Franklin, and what does it tell us about Tampa? And more importantly, who gets the benefit of playing time now that Nick Franklin is elsewhere? Yeah, one of the interesting things here, or I thought in, in looking at Franklin this spring, is he's a versatile guy. He came up with Seattle as a shortstop second baseman, and then last year he began playing those positions and, and outfield and first base in Tampa Bay. He was never going to provide more than a 250, 260 BA. In fact, his contact skills were the reason that he, he was looked at as a, a failed prospect for so long. But he's always had this power speed upside, some versatility in his left-handedness. Seemingly, he, I, I thought he should have should have made that team um, but I think a few things are in play here first the Tampa Bay roster is loaded with left-handed batters and questionable questionable batting average options as well uh, second it, it, the, the thing that it really clarified is is Franklin's defense is a big question mark obviously they, they didn't think much about it uh, of it and I, and I think it may have been a primary factor in cutting him given that Tim Beckett, Beckham is uh, a low a low BA defensively challenged shortstop filling in for injured Matt Duffy um, effectively, Franklin's roster spot was taken by Daniel Robertson, a right-handed batter, better fielding, more contact-oriented player than Franklin. He's backing up Beckham now. And finally, the Rays have Willie Adamas, who's, who's waiting in the wings, maybe for a post-Super 2 call update. So to summarize, uh, though maybe his defense and, uh, and, and his swing, the swing and miss in Franklin's game were, were factors here, I'm not convinced this one is completely on him. I think he was on the wrong team at the wrong time. Well, Jock, no matter whose fault it is or what it reflects on Nick Franklin, the fact is he's going to take 125, 150 plate appearances out of Tampa, and that means somebody's going to pick up some plate appearances. Who's it likely to be? Well, a lot of the names I mentioned earlier, uh, Beckham, uh, he's kind of a toolsy guy who had a good spring, still batting average challenged, and uh, defense is in question mark. He's playing shortstop right now, at least until Duffy gets back. Daniel Robertson is getting some at-bats, uh, uh, and, and maybe Adamas uh, later on. Um, uh, the other guys who are going to benefit, because Franklin was playing in the outfield, 
or all those Franklin or all those Tampa Bay outfielders. You got Malik Smith and Souza. Um, they're going to get a lot of at bats. Uh, note that all of these names are, are, I think anyway, batting average challenged, and none of them are shoe-ins to be starting later in the year. Even even Sousa. I think a guy like Jake Bowers, who we've discussed in the past, has a great second half opportunity. Tampa lineup has a lot of holes in it and could be in flux for a while. Yeah, it looks like they were going to be kind of mixing and matching and patching, uh, even if Nick Franklin had a state around. I don't think that has changed a lot with him going. Just one last patch to try to figure out what pair of pants it's going to go on. Uh, over in Baltimore, uh, Chris Olson, who covers the American League East in playing time tomorrow, sees the Orioles have an outfielder DH mix that could be changing, even though opening day is barely in the rearview mirror. What is Chris Olson seeing with that outfielder DH situation in Camden Yards? Well, Chris makes the point that Trey Mancini is on the team and Joey Rickard is on the team. Whether they're going to play enough or contribute enough to stay on the team um, is is really interesting. Um, that is that is a, a, a strange mix they have here, and we've talked about this in the past. You got Seth Smith, who on most teams uh, may not even start anymore. Um, he's in the outfield in right field with Ricker platooning. You've got Hyunsoo Kim who has a lot to prove in left field, uh, batting against righties and and Craig Gentry hitting against lefties. You've also got Pedro Alvarez in the minors trying to learn how to play outfield. And for my money, I would rather hit, have him hitting against right-handers than any of those 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 other names. His uh, his uh, OPS versus right-handers is well above uh, 800. He's not going to hit much more than uh, than 250 but he's going to walk and he's going to hit home runs um this is a, a very strange outfield it is and when i look at the depth charts as they p- are published at baseballhq.com the orioles outfield column when you look down it has a lot of guys with 10 and 20 percent of the playing time only adam jones is a 95 percent playing time guy and which means he's going to be essentially a full-time player. Nobody else. The next highest guys are Seth Smith and Hyunsoo Kim you mentioned, but they're only at 60% playing time, which means there's, again, going to be a lot of mixing and matching going on. And I guess the question becomes, Jock, at some point do they just decide maybe we need to cut down from seven guys playing you know, part-time hours to five guys playing mostly full-time with a couple of backups. This, as a roster proposition, seems untenable. No, you're right, and uh, and anytime you see um, an outfield and a DH spot bifurcated as much as as this one is, um, that's where your opportunities occur. Because if somebody breaks out or or they trade for somebody or somebody in the minor starts coming through, they're going to win some playing time. So it's kind of an interesting situation, even though we can't see clearly who the big winners might be right now. But I really like Alvarez here. I still think he could come up and get 300, 350 at bats. Just have to be prepared for maybe a little. Uh batting average shortfall a lot of these guys have that problem as you mentioned a lot of batting average shortfalls here uh, it's a it's a situation that's in flux much as you mentioned earlier uh, and this is not a kind of flux situation where anybody should be looking at it and going i think i see where the advantage will fall here uh, it, all of them seem speculative at best yeah, you're right, and and it's interesting uh, on a, on a general and on a bigger note, uh, the AL has a real outfield problem. There's a lot of uh, really bad outfielders. It seems we just went from from Tampa Bay to Baltimore, and I've seen a few more too. So uh, uh, the outfield, if you're, if you're really looking for outfielders, um, look at the National League before you look at the American League. Although although as we've said, there is opportunity in the American League because of this situation. 
Yes, one man's uh, desperate situation is another guy's opportunity, I guess. Uh, finally, Jock, I'm interested in the story of Garrett Richards. Uh, very famously last year uh, came down with a tear in his ulnar collateral ligament, typically a Tommy John surgery situation. He opted instead to go back uh, into the alternate therapy area. He got some platement-rich plasma injections. He's trying to do therapy and avoid this Tommy John surgery, and it seemed to be going okay. Then he has his first start. He looks okay for a couple of innings. Then after four and two-thirds, grabs his throwing arm and walks off the field. This can't be good. He's apparently going for an MRI even as we speak. What are you hearing down there in uh, Anaheim? Yeah, I, I was actually watching the game. Um, I didn't like what I saw, and obviously I stood up as soon as I saw it and thought, oh, gosh, this is awful. Um, his initial reaction wasn't good, the, the, that split second that it happened. Of course, the Angels all marched out of the dugout, so she and the trainer, etc. After that, he didn't seem too worried about it. He was kind of smiling and, you know, and laughing about it. He shook his arm a little bit, but he wa wasn't walking off, clutching his arm. The Angels say it's minor. They think it's just a cramp from um, what was his most extended pitch count of the spring, and he was pitching in uh, cold and damp Bay Area weather. He was throwing against the A's. We're going to see. I still don't like the situation, given what he's going through and given his – he's got some – Richards has always had inconsistent mechanics, and, and, and I've always thought uh, for a long time that he had been an injury waiting to happen. So, so what uh, – his injury uh, last year, the ligament tear, didn't surprise me. This is not one of those situations where you can just, I think, go out and cut Richards. If you're in, you're in for the long haul. Uh, it's not good uh, – now you just hope for the best. Hopefully he, he misses a start at most or, or maybe even not even that, but we're going to find out probably today with the MRI. When I look at the uh, Angels depth charts at BaseballHQ.com, I see a lot of low percentage guys. Uh, just a start here, start there, a few innings. J.C. Ramirez, Yusmero Pettit, Bud Norris, Jesse Chavez. I mean, none of these names makes my heart sing with joy, but should we be looking at any of these uh, starting pitchers as potential guys that might have fantasy value? Now, right now, not really. I mean, I, I wrote about this, too, in the spring. Uh, the Angels are going to try to make this a relay race. They're going to throw all of these ex-starters and long relievers uh, in waves. Uh, uh, Richards was on a pitch count. Uh, he had almost reached it before he, he came down with his elbow issue. Um, they were already warming up in the pen. Um, like you said, that Bud Norris, Yusmero uh, Pettit, uh, uh, J.C. Ramirez, all these guys can uh, throw in long relief. You've got Alex Minor, uh, control challenged Alex Minor down in the down in the minors. Um, none of these guys you want to run out and grab. It's a real shaky system in Anaheim. It, it's a real shaky uh, pitching situation altogether, except for maybe in Houston, all over the AL West. Uh, the AL West has some interesting pitching problems. Jock, thanks very much for telling us about the problems. Uh, now we have to keep our eyes peeled for what these teams come up with by way of solutions, especially when you talk about, as I mentioned, Seattle, uh, Houston, they're a little bit stronger. But mo a lot of the teams in the American League West think they have a chance to win the division. And uh, to do that, I think somebody's got to do something to improve their pitching. Do they not? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Uh, the team that I think really has to go out there, because with Houston, they're the favorite uh, they have to do something as Texas. Their rotation is already in trouble, and their bullpen hasn't looked good early on, too. So there's another team that's in turmoil. We could have talked about them, and we probably will in the coming weeks. All right, Jock, I'll look forward to that. Uh, thanks very much for helping us out. We'll talk to you next week, maybe about Texas, maybe about something else, but it's always something. Okay, PD, see ya.
Jock Thompson is BaseballHQ.com's director of news and analysis and a speculator columnist at the site. And he covers player news from the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Taking a quick break right now, then we'll be back with Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper in the Bus podcast coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, this is Rob Gordon, minor league analyst for BaseballHQ.com, and I just wanted to take a minute to tell you about the 2017 edition of the Minor League Baseball Analyst, our annual guide to the prospects and trends that will help you win your fantasy leagues. The Minor League Baseball Analyst has scouted more than 1,000 prospects using Baseball HQ's exclusive player potential rating systems, sabermetric analysis, performance trends, and major league equivalencies from the past five seasons, and there's lots more as well. Order your minor league baseball analyst today for just $19.95 plus shipping and handling. And if you order directly from baseballhq.com slash MLBA17 and enter the promo code MINERS at checkout, you get $5 off your order. Plus, you also get a PDF copy of the book. And if that isn't enough, you get online updates for all 30 organizational lists and our top 50 fantasy prospects. Today's winning fantasy baseball players get on top and stay on top by knowing which prospects are the wannabes, the maybes, and the gunnabes. Go to the top. Go to BaseballHQ.com slash MLBA17 and order your minor league baseball analyst today. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Paul Sporer from Fangraphs.com and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Paul Sporer, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you so much for having me on, Patrick. Oh, it's a real delight. I'm really looking forward to it. Before we get uh, started on the details, uh, how did your drafts go as you went into this season? They went all right. I'm pretty, I'm pretty uh, happy about, about how the group went. Uh, my first time in the main event for NFBC as well, so that's very, been very exciting. Uh, we're obviously going to talk about one of the drafts, the Tal Wars draft. There's this one home league, and I talked about it on, on my podcast as well, where um, I always struggle in it. And there's something about this group of players that, that I play against that they like to drive the prices up on me, you know, that they're... They're fr- they're all friends, you know. They're, they're guys I've known now for a while. I've been in this league for a while. For whatever reason, I get in that room, and I just don't do well. So, out of all the drafts, I feel pretty good about virtually every single one, but that one. I just I didn't do well in in that particular NL only uh, eleven team auction. But uh, it'll be a, it'll be an in season grind. On the whole, though, I'm excited about uh, the groups that's put together. Sometimes when we listen to the SiriusXM and to the various uh, fantasy baseball podcasts, we hear the experts talking about having shares in particular players, and which isn't really having shares in them in the stock market sense, but it means they have players on multiple rosters. Do you have any players that you have multiple shares in that are finding their way onto multiple rosters? Absolutely. And sometimes that's by design. There are guys that I really like on the season that I've got no problem trying to get. I don't mind consolidating um, if, uh, yeah, I definitely like to use that, that phraseology as well. That's something that I've been using for a while. Um, James Paxton definitely won. I know he was a hot ticket pitcher that a lot of folks did like. Uh, I, was, I was definitely among them. Joey Votto somebody that I find is, is undervalued in leagues, even in an OBP league. He doesn't always go in the first round, which is insane. And by, well, doesn't go in the first round, the picks before me, if he makes it to my pick. There's no doubt he's going, so I'm always invested in, in Joey Votto. Um, David Peralta on the bounce back is somebody that I've got, gotten a few shares of. 
there's a, there's a handful of other guys. I'll actually end up writing a piece over at Fangraphs about all the ones that I have uh, multiple shares of. It, it is something that I do strive to do. Ivan Nova's another one, Taiwan Walker. It's usually pitchers for me. Um, and I, I think it's probably that way for a lot of folks because once you kind of get in that 10th plus round area of most drafts, it really opens up. ADP really doesn't matter at that point. And folks start taking their guys. Um, and a lot of times, quote unquote, your own, your guys uh, end up being different pitchers that you're really excited about. And you are a, a pitching guy. I mean, a lot of the research that you've presented over the last few years and uh, a lot of the discussions that you have on your podcast and other uh, radio type sources talks about pitching you've looked a lot into starting pitching over your career absolutely i used to write the starting pitcher guide um took a hiatus this year because when i got the full-time gig over at fangraft it just wasn't going to be tenable with the time but it's hiatus it's not done uh but i did that for i think eight years total actually 10 years if you count it used to be a message board post that's what it started as was this giant message board post of my top 100 pitchers with analysis on all 100. Then it morphed into the PDF file and then into what it is uh, these days or what it was last year. Um, yeah, starting pitcher, it's, pitchers have just always been something that have been very interesting to me. It's been something that I love studying kind of the art of pitching, the art and the science of pitching. And actually it was uh, Rick Wilton, um, injury guy, you know, for HQ, who, who kind of encouraged me to, to focus on, on one thing. We were on a call for this now-defunct website that ages ago. I can't even remember exactly what name it was. Uh, it, it, this was a long time ago. We both got on the call early, and uh, we were talking, and he's like, you know, hey, what do you, what, what do, you, what do, you do? And I said, you yeah, know, I'm a jack-of-all-trades. I can do everything. I, I dabble in a little bit of football as well. And he said, you know, now, I'm not saying you have to do this, but one thing I might recommend is kind of having a, a central focus, something that you kind of uh, hone in on and, and get really good at that, as opposed to try to be as opposed to trying to be in on everything. And I kind of took that advice, and I, pretty much from that point on, pitching has been my primary focus. I obviously, you know, feel comfortable talking about hitters and all that sort of stuff, but I stopped doing other sports. I focused entirely on baseball, and then specifically on pitching, and that's. Uh, the rest is history, as they like to say. And it does help you establish something of a personal brand in the marketplace instead of being, oh, he knows baseball. If if you can say about yourself, I know pitching, and everybody in the marketplace understands Paul knows pitching, you start to develop that brand reputation. And it, I think it really helps you establish yourself as, some, as a go-to person amongst all the jacks of all trades, as you said. I completely agree, and, and that is something that... Um, you know, I, 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 I like, I like that people will say, Hey, you know, I got a pitching question. I'm going to ask Paul or, you know, we got two guys, you know, me and, you know, Sarah's on, a, on our podcast. We both love pitching. The fact that we're both on there, it's definitely something that, uh, that, that we're excited to have as, as a little bit of a forte. Again, we'll talk hitters. We'll feel confident in that, but pitching is, is really where our, our bread is buttered. 
Now, there's a lot of new stats. You're, you're at Fangraphs, which has done a tremendous job in delivering these new statistical ideas and, st- and the statistics themselves to the, to the regular market out there. Of course, uh, some websites have had access to the information, but they have to pay for it. It's proprietary. They pay Baseball Info Solutions or Elias or whoever it is. But Fangraphs takes the information, packages it, and then makes it available for nothing to anybody who wants to use it, fantasy players, baseball analysts, fans, whoever wants to use it. How much of the, how do you integrate the new material as it comes along and how do you decide whether you want to use it or whether you don't? Because there's a lot of discussion about whether, for instance, do we really need to know the, the speed of the, of the batted ball to one-tenth of a mile an hour? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can kind of use it how you want, right? It, it, it depends. It can be a fire hose situation where you get so much info and you're like, well, what, you know, how, how do I use all of this? Honestly, I don't always get that super deep on it. Like, I, the, the things that I still really love are, you know, looking at strikeout and walk rates. That's pretty basic, of course. But then I like, you know, being able to, to, to look at pitches specifically. That's another thing that I think we do well when you go on the leaderboard and you click the, uh, the pitch type tab. You, you've got every, every guy's arsenal with his velocity, like how much he's used the pitch and the velocity of each pitch. I find that very valuable. I like to know what they're using especially when you're looking for changes in a guy. You know, a, guy, a guy's got, uh, you know, newfound ERA growth. Well, what's behind it, right? Because you don't just improve your ERA. That's not what you do. You change things. And if there aren't changes, then it's not something that's necessarily bankable. So I, I still am a, a nuts and bolts kind of guy. You know, I, I like something like a, like a, a FIP, a fielding independent pitching, to kind of give you an idea of some things, but that's not an end-all, be-all measure. And if you ever try to use really any of these measures as, as standalones, you're really going to wind up down, down a wonky path. And, 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 you know, you say, okay, this, this guy has this FIP, or Noah Syndergaard has this FIP, so when somebody else has this FIP, they can be like Noah Syndergaard. It just doesn't work that way. It's the elements that go into it. And a lot of times those are just very basic, strikeout, walk rate, how many times they're getting, you know, swinging strike rate, how many times they're getting guys to, to whiff through, um, home run rate, ground ball, fly ball, the, the basics. And, and putting it all together, one of the best things I think we do at Fangraphs is you can customize the boards the way you want uh, on the player pages even so that the first set of stats when you go to a guy's player page is what you want. And uh, I think that that is especially valuable. I think my dashboard probably looks a lot different than most, and I think it'd be interesting to kind of see how everybody has their dashboard of stats for players. I think I understand what you're saying because I've done the same thing myself. I was always more of a batting guy. That's how I started at BaseballHQ.com, and I've found that as these new stats come along, I still find myself sort of filtering at that first stage by the old-fashioned stuff. How many times does this guy walk? How often does he strike out? Uh, Now... Uh, how much hard contact does he make? Those kind of things are like the first cut. And then when you start identifying certain players within that first cut, that's when you start digging into how often is he swinging and missing inside the zone and out? How often is he swinging and missing at fastballs inside the zone and out? Curveballs inside the zone and out? And so on. You know what I mean? That you, you start off with the basic stuff and only when you're interested in a guy is it worth your time to start really digging into these much more advanced metrics. And of course we know there's a lot more of them to come with the uh, cameras and radar systems and stuff that are becoming ubiquitous across the game. Exactly. And, so, and, you know, we're using this as a way to say you don't have to be intimidated by it if you're not 
a huge stats guy. I'm actually not like a major math guy. Like I, I don't I don't run regressions and everything like that. I I have the people at Fangraphs who can do that for me. Like we have we have people that are, are there to help you if you tell them that you'd like something run. Uh, they they can do that for you. I'm not the person who who does that. Um, and so I'm I'm not. I, I am a stats guy in that I like stats. I utilize stats, but I'm not the guy who's out there making new stats. So you you don't have to be super math oriented to to want to get into it. It's definitely something that uh, that even entry level, if you've never been a big stats guy before, you can dip your toe in. And again, the basics will get you a lot of information, and it's strikeouts and walks on both sides of the ball. And I think something else you said that's really important is trends in those in those basic stats. Is the guy getting better or worse over time? I think is still underrated insofar as when we're assessing players, you have to figure out how you want to weight the most recent year and then earlier years. You have to be a little more suspicious about uh, players who don't have a track record in the majors, those kind of things. But I really like looking for hitters and pitchers who are showing some kind of change in a sustained way, either for the good or for the ill, and uh, I'm going to be more interested in those guys who are trending positively and not so interested in guys who are trending negatively. I think sometimes it's the change that's more important than where a guy is at the moment. Completely agree, and that's something that we're going to be focused on here in April and May when we see guys put up new stats, or, or different stats, I should say, whether they're positive or negative. Well, what's changed? And you know, If you have a negative guy uh, who, who's down you know, hitting, hitting poorly, but we don't see any real changes, that's somebody that you're going to buy in and you're going to say, you know what, he's going to be fine. Same with a pitcher. But um, it, on the plus end, if you see a pitcher that's dominating and everything's looking good, it's like, well, what's going on here? And he's the same guy he's always been. That's probably a regression candidate, like a guy who, who will fall back to his mean. Uh, and so you have to kind of, kind of be careful with that. But always look for the change behind the stats. Even if you believe in the guy, that's, I think that's the toughest part in fantasy is that you believed in a guy, he has these newfound uh, success numbers, you're like, yes, my pick was correct. But then you go look at the data and you see there's no real change and he's the same player he was. You've got to be honest with yourself and realize it's probably going to come back to earth. And certainly a huge advantage in the trade market or, or in uh, deciding what player moves to make. You can sometimes, everybody says sell high, but nobody ever tells you how, and I think that's a really good way to do it. It's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper in the Bust podcast. And uh, Paul, you mentioned that you're a tout head-to-head drafter this year in Tout Wars in New York, and you made quite an impression at that draft. You spent $221 out of your $260 budget on hitting, and you landed, among others, Joey Votto, whom you mentioned, Nolan Arenado, Trevor Story, Bryce Harper, and Mike Trout. Your $39 pitching staff starts with a $23 Chris Archer, a $9 Michael Pineda, and a bunch of $1 guys. You said on the Sleeper in the Bus podcast that this was not actually a plan going in, so how did an 85-15 hit-pitch split come about in this draft? Yeah, so the original plan was to kind of emulate uh, league winner from last year and, and colleague Jeb Zimmerman, who had two stud pitchers, two aces. He had uh, Max Scherzer and, and Jose Fernandez, and, and kind of went from there and then stacked on his hitting on the other side there. So, you know, okay, that sounds pretty viable as something that I can kind of repeat, I'll look to do that. Well, then, you know, the best laid plans, you get into the, uh, you get into the draft and things kind of change on their face there. And uh, I think I got Trout first uh, of, of the group there, and I just said, you know what, I'm going to get Harper here as well. 
And uh, once I got him, I started to say, you know what? I'm going to get another stud, at least one more, because I'm not leaving this room without Joey Votto. And so then I'm thinking on those three guys, I said, well, what if I can get uh, Arenado as well? You know, what, what, what would happen? Like, what are the $1 plays? And I'm looking at my list that I put together um, and, and, uh, of the late plays that I have, and I've got tons of guys that I'd be very comfortable with at $1 or, or even in the, in the kind of like $1 to $4 range to kind of fill out this team. And so I decided to just go full bore with it. Uh, I think the one factor that really lends itself to something like this is that it's K9, not straight-up Ks. So I didn't necessarily need a lot of starters uh, or even particularly good ones. They could be guys who just have a lot of, uh, a, a good K9, and I'm going to supplement them with some really fancy relievers as well, like middle relievers who are going to bring down the ratios and also get K9 themselves. I don't really need to get saves. I ended up with one closer, Ryan Madsen, who's in a committee. Uh, the plan was to go with two. Jim Johnson was available at the time, and I was going to get both. And since I, I've only got the one, he doesn't do me much good, so I'm actually going to jettison uh, Madsen for another just high strikeout guy. So, you know, it ended up working out better than I even thought because some of the $1 guys I got, I couldn't believe that the, the room let me have them, and particularly Marcelo Zuna, Carlos Beltran, and, and Matt Holiday, all at a dollar uh, really surprised me and, and, of course, pleased me greatly. So um, it, it was just something that kind of evolved as the draft was going, and I figured I would challenge myself a little bit and kind of see how it goes. You also mentioned on your podcast that you kind of sort of agree with the general lack of interest in Michael Pineda. You got him for $9, and in that league you said he was a buy at that price. Why do you think so? Well, the K-9 certainly helps, and I think we saw it even in the midst of, of his bad start. It was, it was a very Pineda start, and I thought the K-9 and the innings that he's going to get, cause I do have to reach an innings minimum here. I believe it's a 950 total, and um, I do think that he's going to have enough skills to, to still get to that 170-inning threshold at least. Now, health is, has been an issue for him in the past, but I do think that if Pineda's healthy, he's going to keep pitching and he's going to keep racking up strikeouts. So I thought getting a base, uh, one of one of my starters there to have a high K nine at only nine dollars, I found some value. I'm not going to jump off board just because of the bad first start. It's something that you have to deal with with him. He goes in ups and downs. The beauty of the head to head factor, though, is that start can only hurt me once. Uh, the, 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 his first start is, is done. It's not going to kill me anymore beyond this, and I could still win the week. Uh, probably not in ERA. I'm looking at it right now. I'm facing Stefania Bell's team that Justin Mason drafted. Probably not going to win ERA, thanks in part to Pineda, but everything else is on track to still come through. And so the offense is, is clicking right now, and I can still win whip, K9, uh, and possibly even wins. So I, I would still get three out of five there. Uh, saves and ERA would go the other way. But then four, at least four of the five offensive categories are shaping up for me right now, and all five are very much in reach. So if I'm going eight, eight and two, I, I'm, I'm very comfortable with it. So I, I just thought somebody with, like, Pineda's K-9 um, would be worth a gamble here, even though, as you mentioned, I'm not that high on him. Uh, he's been somebody who has annoyed me. I just thought the format kind of fit him especially at nine bucks. You also got a bunch of $1 starting pitchers. You mentioned having those good $1 hitters, Ozuna and Beltran and Holiday. 
But you also got some really good $1 starting pitchers, I thought. Francisco Liriano, I got him in my AL Tout League. Uh, I think he's going to have a good year. I have great confidence in him. Dylan Bundy's already had a really good start. Ian Kennedy, Mike Fultonavich. uh, You also grabbed a few Lima skills relievers you mentioned and put some more on reserve. I presume there's going to be a lot of streaming going on in your uh, as you play this year. Absolutely. Looking for for cushy two-start battles there. If not, I'll just go with the the stud middle reliever there. Uh, Those were targets. And again, those were guys that I was surprised that I could just get at a dollar that I wanted. Liriano, another one, just a high K-9. I actually think he's going to be good as well. I'm with you. I don't think he's necessarily going to, you know, have poor ERA. Whip has always been a challenge for him, but I think he could actually have a really good ERA and a solid whip to go with his strikeouts. I think he gets his strikeouts back up to kind of what we're used to from Liriano, which is which is over a K uh, per inning with Russell Martin back there in Toronto. So I really wanted him. He and Dylan Bundy were main focuses. Kennedy and Fultonevich were also targets, but they, I had backup plans for them. Liriano and Bundy, I would have been a lot more bummed if I didn't get them. So the fact that I was able to get all four of those guys, though, I was ecstatic. And uh, I, I was just really happy with the way it, it turned out. Uh, more than anything, kind of getting some of the $1 guys that you actually want uh, can really help a strategy like this come together. In the aftermath of the draft, I was on some of the uh, fantasy sports radio shows, and we were talking, of course, your your strategy or your approach was the buzz of the uh, Tout Wars uh, next day, especially people talking about your strategy. And uh, another player in the league, Peter Kreutzer, who's also been on my podcast here, was adopting a similar strategy, except instead of going after big power guys like you did, uh, he went for a very low power team, but very heavy on steals, runs, and on-base percentage, and like you, strikeouts per nine ERA and whip on the pitching side, ignoring saves. And I asked him about it, and he said point blank, his strategy is to win six categories every week, because six out of ten wins you every week. And if it works, he's going to he's going to do very well. And of course, I thought you were doing the same thing. I, I thought you had gone in there with the same idea. I just need to win six every week. You can literally punt four categories. That Yeah, that became my, my strategy. I, I was going to go in with a similar like um, similar strategy to, to punt some categories. It just wasn't going to necessarily be the way I ended up going. But I definitely think with some of the changes, too, because last year there was like a, a roto component to it. And it was tougher to, to flat out punt. Yeah. This year, you can literally just go for it and try. And like like Peter said, go six four as often as you can. You don't have to go you know seven three eight two. You're going to have hopefully some of those weeks. But uh, I th- it was interesting because we were sitting next to each other, and I think we were both kind of seeing that both of us were going for a little bit more extreme strategies. And I think the format really allows it. The K nine changes some things up. The head to head aspect of it. Uh, I just think it, 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 it's right to try something different. And, hey, you know, I think it's going to be a lot of fun to see how the two of us do, especially it'd be really interesting if the two of us kind of end up going far and, 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 and squaring off down the road. Yes, it will. It could all come down to run scored, or maybe maybe you'll uh, be glad if you hung on to the uh, 
Ryan Madsen who gets you the one save that wins you the category that week one or something save. like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, or, or picking him up in the free agent pool. It's a 12-team mix, so there's going to be plenty of choices that way. I think you made an interesting point about the this uh, idea that the league's different format and a small rules change to eliminate an aspect of scoring seems to encourage extreme strategies like you adopted and like Peter went into with uh, the idea of using. Now, some people seem to see this as a feature of tout head-to-head, these uh, the ability to adopt these extreme strategies. Other people think it's a bug. Is it a feature or is it a bug? Absolutely a feature. Anything that kind of that kind of tries that allows you to try different things is one hundred percent a feature. Um, you know, we we have a lot of you know kind of staid rules in, in fantasy that you know you can, you can fall back on and try, and there's nothing wrong with those. But being innovative and having a format that that encourages innovation. I don't think that's ever going to be a negative aspect. And so I think that having this league as a bit of a playground um, is, is particularly interesting. Honestly, I think kind of all of the leagues should be, and it, I would like to see you know uh, one or two managers every year in each of the leagues try something. Not, not by force, like don't force it, but you know, if you're doing something, if you're doing kind of a standard stars and scrubs or a standard spread the risk every year and it's not working, why not try something different? And you know, uh, last year I didn't I didn't do anything special. I was like mid lower lower end of the pack. Nothing particularly special that that year. And I figured, you know what? I went pretty basic last year with the strategy of uh, stars and scrubs. Nothing special. And this is stars and scrubs, but it's different stars and scrubs. So I figured, you know what? Try something different this year. See how it goes. Again, I didn't have this exact plan going in. I just said. I'm going to try something uh, where I'm a little bit more committed to something I want to do, getting players I want to get. And the 12-team aspect certainly helps it, too, because it's a lot more uh, – it's a richer player pool on the waiver wire and in the end game. But uh, I, I certainly think it's an absolute feature that there are uh, – that, that, that it can be, be a playground for trying different things. I 100% agree with you. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt. With Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper and Bus podcast. And Paul, you have a regular chat on Fangraphs that's open to all Fangraph members and membership is free, so you should sign up for that if you're listening at home. And some excellent questions come up every time on that, uh, along with a little frivolity. I was struck by your comment about innings limits when someone asked you about Lance McCullers. And you said innings limits are not as important or vital as some people think. Why are they not? It seems like they should be. Well, mainly because we just don't know. Um, how they're going to go, and, and and so freaking out too much about them or changing player valuations, I think uh, can lead you astray. And so I think you should focus on the skills of the player and kind of let something like that play out. Look at Aaron Sanchez last year. This is a single example, but I don't think I don't think it's completely out of the ordinary to see this. You know, he was going to be on a strict innings limit. Then he goes out and he's having an amazing season. He's leading the American League in ERA. Uh, he's having a breakout just overall. They're a contending team, and they get him to the finish line. Now, there could be a total pay this year or beyond, uh, adding 100 innings to your total. But I, I, I think that that's something that, you know, that doesn't really concern us at that point. I'm not trying to sound morbid, like, well, if he gets hurt, he gets hurt. But I'm saying the team themselves felt comfortable enough because he put on weight and muscle as well. That was part of his transition to allow Sanchez to go uh, a full 192 innings when all year, all summer, you know, all, all spring and then into the summer, we we're talking innings limit, innings limit, innings limit. It's definitely coming. 
and then they, they, they buckled because they needed him, and, and it makes sense. Houston's the exact, this exact same scenario could play out. Where Lance McCullers, yes, health has been a major concern. He had shoulder and elbow issues last year, but he's a devastating talent. He's so, so good that I think, um, you know, if he's pitching and he's looking healthy, they're not going to sit him. They're, they're not, they can massage it a little bit in season, you know, uh, eight days off here, ten days off here to kind of get, get a few extra uh, rest days there. But I don't think they're going to full stop him if he's pitching well, looking healthy, and they're still contending, which everyone expects Houston to be. So the main reason that I don't get hung up on is because we really have no idea when they're going to come about, and I think you'll end up passing on very talented players because you think you can actually predict when they're going to give an innings limit and when they're not. And as you said, when they're going to uh, stick by it, even if they announce it early in spring, because I remember last year I lived near Toronto, and I remember that the team said he's going to be on an innings limit. They actually started him in the bullpen, if I remember correctly, because they wanted to hold his innings down and maybe start him as a starter in May or like mid-May. And in fact, they got him out on the uh, as a starting pitcher right away, and he pitched all year. He pitched into the playoffs and showed no ill effects. And I think something else that's interesting, Paul, about this is as we said earlier, when something changes, it's important to look and see if there's a reason for the change or whether it just appears to be random. And Aaron Sanchez, and this was quite well publicized uh, here in the Toronto area, Aaron Sanchez became a workout fiend. He just started like doing all of these in- intense workouts with a with a private trainer, and he bu- he muscled up in a good way. He's not bulky. He's he's strong and lean, and he's got bigger, and he's getting a little older, so he's growing into his body. There's no reason that he should necessarily require an innings limit, even after a high innings previous season. Exactly, and this is actually one of the aspects where you know, kind of being on the social media stuff can help you because. Um, one thing that stuck in my head was Marcus Stroman, who I follow on Twitter. Uh, and I don't follow actually a ton of athletes. Uh, they're generally boring, uh, if I'm being honest. But I really like Marcus Stroman. I happen to follow him. And he was always taking pictures of Sanchez, like in the, lo- uh, in the, in the clubhouse, getting ready to eat, and, and like just talking regularly about, oh, dude, my, my boy's bulked up. Here's a pick. And you could see that, you know, he wasn't overly muscled up. Aaron Sanchez wasn't. But he clearly had put on weight to what was otherwise uh, a thin frame previously, 6'4", 190. Uh, is, that's what he's listed. He's, he was probably tracking around 6'4", 210 last year. And it, it certainly looked a lot more filled out, uh, as you mentioned, as he entered age 24 season. I, I think something like that, that was like a, just a little thing that I'd seen, a couple pictures uh, and, and Stroman talking about how much work, working out he had done that kind of put me on Sanchez. And, you know, I just said, you know what, if they do an innings limit, I'll figure it out. You know, figure it out when it happens. It's four or five months away uh, when we're talking about these things. So much can change. We can barely predict. Uh, I mean, we can't really predict what's going to happen on April, you know, through April 15th, and that's a week away how are we really going to accurately predict what's going to be happening in August, September, and beyond? So that's why, you know, you just take a shot with the skills. I bet on skills and see where it goes. Lance McCullers has some of the filthiest stuff in the entire game, and I think that they're going to be inclined to let him keep pitching, uh, again, if he's showing healthy and they continue to contend. So that's why I wasn't at all concerned about an innings limit with him this year because I think a, a breakout season in the mold of Aaron Sanchez uh, is is you know Cy Young worthy campaign for Lance McCullers? 
I was struck by something you said that we we don't know what's going to happen in the next 10 days, never mind the next five months. Do you think sometimes that the increase in the amount of data that is being widely reported, especially to people who follow the game on a casual basis and they just hear new data, new data, new tools, new tools, that we're in a certain way, some of us uh, analysts and fans alike are getting a little overconfident in our ability to understand what's going on out there and predict it? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. And this, this goes out to you know, everybody, all of us, myself included, where we feel like we've got this firm handle. And I think one of the things that I've, that I've been trying to do over the past few years is embrace the fact that I definitely don't know and, and, and that that's okay. And, you know, go, go with what you got, bet on what, what you feel confident in, but then be ready to adjust. You know, th- this, isn't, this isn't a situation where, you know, in, in politics they, they, they freak out uh, anytime anybody changes their mind, and we don't have to get into any sort of po- political discussion, but like I, I get that a bit more. But in, in something like fantasy baseball, changing your mind—you're not a flip flopper. You don't have to be convicted to something because when new information comes, you should be malleable. You should be open to changing. I don't see any reason about being dogmatic about something, um, and and you know, oh, I just like this guy, and then he makes these changes or adds this pitch, and he becomes good, and, you, and you, you're still going to dig in, saying, no, no, can't can't do it. I still dislike this guy. That doesn't make any sense to me. So I've been open to saying, you know what, this is what I got. This is what I feel. I'm going to go with it. And if I see new data, I will be open to changing and, you know, admitting I was wrong or, or, or adjusting things one way or another. It's one of the things I really like about working at Baseball HQ is that they're really willing to uh, accept the idea that maybe there's something that they could do better. And I, I remember in my own case, a few years ago, I was still writing the batting uh, analysis, and and it was kind of a, a rule of thumb at Baseball HQ that walk rate for a hitter was directly linked to batting average. And I thought to myself, well, why should that be? You know, we were using it as a proxy for ability to swing at strikes and not swing at non-strikes. But it turned out, I just did a series of regressions against a few seasons worth of data, and it turned out that it was just as likely you'd hit 350 with a 3% walk rate as it was that you'd hit 250 with a 3% with a high walk rate. High walk rate, low walk rate, it just didn't correlate at all with batting average. What it did correlate with was power, and I think maybe there's something there. Uh, I think that's interesting that you have to be willing to say, I used to believe that this is the case, I no longer believe it. And, you know, when I think about it, uh, when you listen to a lot of baseball broadcasters, the worst thing about a lot of them is that they refuse to believe that their old way of looking at it, RBIs matter, is is has somehow been disproved, and they just get mad when you suggest that it is, even though we all know it is. It, yeah, it, it, it's it's really frustrating. Again, the, the folks who dig in on on one side in the face of evidence, too. That that's where where, where it really gets me. It's like you know why why do you even care that 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 you were wrong? Like. It's not anything like against you to be like, you know what? Yeah, that's probably not the best way. Like RBIs do have obviously some value in terms of a guy who can, you know, Jonas Cespedes I think is a very good RBI guy. He knows how to get the guy in from third in all those situations. There are some guys who, who aren't as good at it. You know, they, they don't know how to shorten up or, or get the sacrifice fly or make sure that they get the ground ball to the proper, uh, to the right side of the infield, et cetera, that sort of stuff. That said, the number of RBIs that a guy has is not a talent measure. And I don't understand why you still hear folks say, oh, man, he's, having a, he's been excellent this year because he has 85 RBIs. No, 
No, he, he's, he's doing other things. He's got a good walk rate. He doesn't strike out. He hits the ball hard. Those are the skills that he has that have allowed him to get 85 RBIs in three months or whatever it is. But, yeah, I, you know, there's just always going to be folks who are, who are dug in on their, their side of something, and it just doesn't make any sense to me. Like the people who still want to make it stats versus scouting, if you can't see that it's both, I just I can't help you because it's so obviously both that it's not even funny. Like I learned so much more stuff watching the games than I do anything about uh, you know just looking at the stats. I like to to watch and then dig in on the stats, or vice versa. I see some interesting stats, then I want to go watch the particular pitcher. But uh, you never want to get too dug in on on one thing because. That's when you look most foolish is when you just, again, stay dogmatic about something, saying this is how it has to be, even in the face of evidence. Well, you certainly couldn't be accused of uh, joining the crowd or, or refusing to think about things in new ways when one of your chat participants at Fangraphs said he thought Anthony Rizzo was being overrated and overdrafted, and you agreed with him. And that surprises a lot of people, I'm sure. Why? Well, I just I don't understand why he's necessarily seen as a, the lockdown number two guy ahead of Miguel Cabrera, Joey Votto, and even Freddie Freeman. I understand he has a lineup um, advantage over most guys. That lineup is deep and, and, and strong. I, I certainly agree with that. But I think one of the main things that, that we're doing with Anthony Rizzo is, is propping him up a, a, a bit extra, a few extra picks. And at that top of the, at the top of the draft, a few picks is a big difference. You know, thirteen to seventeen, like that's a big difference. Whereas you go four or five rounds later, four picks really isn't anything. It's like a sliding scale, kind of like the NFL draft. I don't know if you ever seen one of those draft value boards where the first pick is worth so much, and then you can get all the way down to just like pick eight, and, and the point value is, is desperately different. I think that's uh, like that in fantasy where. Uh, you're talking in the early rounds, each pick matters. And he's, he's substantially above those other three guys I mentioned. And even in Canarcion, um, who I think I would, I would get in that group as well. And I don't really see how he's markedly better than them. Um, he's never hit more than 32 home runs. It's a perfectly fine total, but it's certainly not an end-all, be-all. And the part I was going to say that I got a little bit sidetracked on was, I think he's getting overrated for those 17 stolen bases that he had in 2015. And that was great. To get 17 bases out of your first baseman is, is, is awesome. But then he, had, he went three for eight last year. And, uh, you know, he was five for nine the year before, six for 11 in, in 2013. That 17 was such an anomaly, I don't see it happening ever again at all. I'd be, I'd be so surprised. It would be another statistical anomaly. And yet I think he gets a lot of credit for it as if he's a five-tool first baseman. So you got a, you got a guy who's never hit more than, 30, more than 32 homers. Uh, he's not going to steal. He does have good runs in RBIs because he's in a great, great uh, lineup. Batting average is going to be solid, but certainly not awesome. You know, 292 last year was, was very good, but he's never hit over 300. I don't understand what, 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 what we're doing here. Again, having him ahead of those four guys, where it's lockdown for people. They're saying, no, Rizzo's definitely ahead of Cabrera, Votto, and Freeman. I don't see it that way. And again, I'm, let me get Encarnacion in there as well. I think any of those four guys could go ahead of Rizzo, and I would have no problem with it. I love that he was a late first-rounder, and I would get those other four in the second round of most drafts. I thought I was definitely taking one over on the people who, who just love Rizzo. He's a very good player. This is not to say that he's not. But he's not better than those four, and he's certainly not better than those four um, definitively.
Well, speaking of the uh, willingness to go out on a limb or to think outside the box, earlier this week you published your bold predictions for 2017. This is a feature at Fangraphs.com. A lot of your writers and analysts there put in these bold predictions. Uh, they're similar in nature to our speculator column at Baseball HQ where we have long shots for winning of various awards and stuff. You said that both Kevin Gausman of the Orioles and Francisco Liriano of the Jays uh, we mentioned Francisco Liriano earlier. You say that they're going to amass 200 strikeouts each. As a Liriano owner, I hope you're right. But what makes you think these two pitchers can reach 200 strikeouts? So I, I like a lot of the stuff that that they have that both of them have. I'll start quickly with Liriano since we've already kind of talked about him. This is actually something that he would just get back to a previous level. And one of the things I mentioned that you know the cop out version of that would, would be to say that he'll have a 200 strikeout pace. Because injuries have been a part of his career pretty stably throughout. You know, he usually gets nicked for a two-week period at some point, um, does Liriano. So it might be more of that 200 strikeout pace. But I, I'm, I'm sticking with the bold prediction and saying he reaches 200 uh, bottom line. And that's something that he did just in 2015. So he's a year removed from, from, a, from a 200 strikeout season. Now, he hadn't done it previously since 2010. So there is still some boldness to it. But I'm just really excited about him getting back with Russell Martin. I think that that's a big deal. And even though the park is a little bit tough, um, I think that the, the Liriano's stuff will play anywhere when he's on. Uh, I firmly believe that. And the home runs last year seem a little bit of an seem to be a little bit of an anomaly. We'll see if they're still there. That would be a little bit worrisome, particularly in Toronto and the AL East. But I think the home runs are going to come back down. He's going to be relatively healthy if he gets to 180 something innings then 200 feels not, I don't want to say easy, but I certainly I think it feels very doable for Liriano. Gaussman's a little bit more of a bet on the come because he hasn't done it yet, but this is a guy who keeps kind of adding little pieces each year. He seems to get better each year, and I think he's ready to finally take the step. Now, I've been predicting a breakout for him now for a couple of years. This is a guy I'm a big fan of, so keep that in mind, um, folks, that, that I, I, just, I really like Kevin Gaussman. I think this is the year that we're going to see the real step forward. He's got the stuff. It is time to kind of put up, uh, you know, a, a, a high impact season. And I think 200 strikeouts could be part of that. He's got a 95 plus mile per hour fastball, a great slider, solid splitter. He needs to figure out sequencing a little bit more. He has a little bit of a reverse platoon split because that splitter's so good that it keeps lefties off balance, but righties are able to get him. The big key to kind of getting there and doing everything uh, for Gossman this year will be to keep the ball in the park. And I think we'll see, uh, you know, 190-plus inning season, uh, a little bit of a boost in the strikeout rate that he had last year. He was at 8.7. You bump that up, you know, nine and a half or so, we're looking at 200 strikeouts in a breakout season for Gossman. Paul, a lot of people were somewhere between surprised and shocked when Blake Trinan was named the closer in Washington, but you boldly predict he's going to be a stud. That's a lot more confident than most. Why the confidence? Well, I, I was also shocked, so I can't say that this, that, you know, this bold prediction wasn't going to be there if Coda Glover would have been named. I, I kind of fell into that. I, I, I was liking Coda Glover, actually. I might, I might have put a bold prediction on him if he had won the job. But what happened was, so Eno, my, my, my co-host, Eno Sanders, is a big Blake Trinan fan, and despite knowing that and, and always hearing him talk about him, I never really took, took time to say, you know what, I should check in on this guy. Like I, I associated him with Eno. But I never said, you know what, I'm going to look at, uh, I'm going to go in on, on Trinan and keep an eye on him. But then once he got the job, I did. I took the time. I went back, looked at, looked at a few outings of his, and oh boy, was I impressed. His stuff is 
so filthy. And Eno always talks about his, his devastating sinker ball. He's definitely one of those guys. And uh, the names that he invokes are Sam Dyson and Zach Britton. Now, Sam Dyson, he's, he, his stock's down in the market right now because he's had a couple really bad outings to start the season. But those three with their sinker balls are, are absolutely devastating. And that's a pretty wide range of outcomes to either become like the next Zach Britton from the right side or to be a, be a Sam Dyson. I think Trinan falls somewhere in between. But you, if you look at the nastiness of his stuff, and now this one's a little bit nebulous, this next part, or, or, or unprovable. It's not very statsy. But I think he's going to gain some confidence from getting into the ninth inning role. He's going to feel more confident in his stuff, and he's going to realize that he can't walk guys at a 12% clip. I think he's going to trust his stuff in the zone a little bit more, and I'm kind of eager to see how he goes uh, goes about cutting that walk rate. That's going to be a big component to getting to where I think he can be. And he's going to have to get ahead of guys with that, with that sinker and just kind of pound it, uh, you know, it at the bottom of the zone, get those strikes, get those ground outs. I just think he's somebody that can be better than a Dyson, probably not a Zach Britton type, but, but, but closer to Britton than Dyson because he also gets strikeouts. So if he cuts that walk rate with the strikeouts that he has and, and the, the, the fact that he's not going to allow home runs, that adds up to a really good closer on a damn good team. So I think we could see a huge season out of Blake Trinan. On the offensive side, Paul, uh, everybody's surprised last year was Jonathan Villar, a 20-homer, 60-stolen uh, base type season is always going to get people's attention. And, of course, now everyone wonders who's going to be this year's Jonathan Villar. And your bold prediction was Delino DeShields in Texas. What do you like about DeShields beyond the obvious speed? Well, yeah, the speed definitely kind of carries the day. That was a big factor for, for VR as well in, in that breakout. But what I like is uh, you know, they, they look kind of similar uh, pre-breakout. You know, the Shield hasn't broken out yet. We know VR, VR through 2015 was pre-breakout after what he did last year, wherein um, they're, they, they're pretty solid at the dish. They can take, they can take a walk. Um, you know, VR actually struck out a decent bit. Uh, prior to 2016, whereas DeShields has been pretty good about handling the zone uh, with both walks and strikeouts. The power isn't evident. You know, both of them had pretty low ISO marks, but you could kind of see where, where it could develop a little bit. Where And, and when VR hit, hit the home runs that he hit last year, it wasn't a complete surprise. Now, nobody put him down for 19 or anything like that, but in that ballpark, with some of the swings they took with, with his ability to kind of hit the ball hard, I wasn't that surprised, especially because uh, I think we'd seen flashes of some punch from him. And here's the thing that I, I think we don't necessarily always uh, acknowledge is that if you've got like a 40, 45 power grade, that's, that can be a double-digit home run total. And so then if, you, if, you, if you're working with like a 45 home run or power grade, you can hit, I don't know, maybe 12 home runs. That's what that pans out for. Um, so you're, 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 as Ron likes to say, Ron Chandler, a few gusts of wind from, from a 15-plus homer season. That, that kind of might have been where Jonathan VR was. A few, few extra uh, carries out there in, in Milwaukee, a good home run park, and all of a sudden instead of hitting 12, he hit 19. So uh, the speed profile with, the way, with a good sense of the strike zone uh, for walks and strikeouts plus some latent punch is why I think the Shields could be VR. Now, the, the factors working against him are uh, a little bit of a crowded room out there in the outfield. In fact, 
the Shields didn't even start for the first couple games, which, which certainly uh, ruffled the feathers of those that were excited about him. And uh, Villar's a switch hitter, whereas the Shields is a righty. So if things don't go well and he struggles, he can find himself on the short end of the platoon, whereas Villar, having that switch hitting, that certainly helped him kind of face either side of the dish. So it's not a perfect comp, but we had no idea that VR was going to do what he did last year. So if you're just looking for somebody who could pull that off, I do think the Shields has the talent to be a guy who could be a total game changer for us, let's say with, with you know, 13 home runs, 50 stolen bases, uh, solid batting average, and a good OBP. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper in the Bus podcast. And, Paul, I'm particularly interested in some pitchers, your specialty, who might have snuck through the auction or drafts. And the first guy I'd like you to comment upon is Raul Alcantara of the A's. He grabbed a rotation spot in Oakland because they had so many injuries there. He's been pretty good in the minors, so how should we look at him with this somewhat unexpected opportunity at the big league level? Yeah, it was, it was pretty surprising that, that, that he won the job. But you know what? You take a look at anybody in Oakland, and you've got to give them a look. You've got to give them a second look, especially if you're in a deep league, AL only like you, like you are in AL South, um, or, or a deep mixed league, 15-plus teams, where anybody who could, who could move the needle even a little bit might have some intrigue. He's a bit of a kitchen sink guy, Alcantara is, uh, wherein he doesn't have one standout plus pitch but he does kind of have the, the full arsenal. He'll hit you with fastball, change-up, slider, curve. That's kind of the order of, of, of his pitches. But he's got four different velocity levels, uh, ranging from high 70s, low 80s, uh, all the way up to about 93 to 95. He can touch, he can touch mid-90s every once in a while, but he sits 92, 93. Um, and any, again, anybody in that park that can kind of get some things done has some intrigue to me. And so I think Raul Alcantara can do some things in, uh, in that ballpark to where he would be a home-only streamer. We haven't seen big strikeout rates from in the minors, and so I doubt that he would all of a sudden come up and, and be a huge strikeout guy in the majors. But I also wouldn't completely rule out add, or, or at least matching his minor league strikeout rate, which is about 18 to 20%, which kind of puts you right around that seven area. If he's doing that at home uh, and keeping the ball in the yard as he's done throughout most of his minor league career, I think we could see a, a usable, streamable pitcher in Oakland. I'm always taking a look at a guy in Oakland. That's how Andrew Triggs popped up on everybody's radar. Jarrell Cotton, uh, neither of those two were particularly heralded. And then they became you know, guys that we were all looking at this year in draft season. I think Alcantara could be the next guy. And what about Adalberto Mejia of the Twins? He bounced Tyler Duffy out of that rotation, not exactly like pushing Clayton Kershaw aside, I grant you, but uh, Adalberto Mejia all of a sudden finds himself in a big league rotation. What ought we to expect? Yeah, another guy that I will call a kitchen sink guy, where he has kind of the full arsenal. None of the pitches are necessarily uh, super standout, but they're all solid. A lot of 50s. Uh, 45s on the board, so average or, or, or just under. And I think he's somebody that could be pretty interesting. I know Eno really likes him. He's talked him up on our podcast, and so that's, that's kind of how he got on my radar was, was, was talking to Eno. Uh, and, he, and he thinks he can do something to where, again, not, not somebody that you're going to go get in your 10 and 12 team leagues unless we see some major changes. But for those of you in deeper leagues, I'm sure a lot of Baseball HQ listeners play in deeper leagues, he could be really interesting out there in Minnesota. I think they're going to give him a real chance. Um, he was the Eduardo Nunez return, if I, if I recall correctly. Um, so he was under the tutelage of the Giants coming up. 
you know, not going to be a major strikeout guy. But again, if he can be in that seven range where he's not, you know, if you get too low, then they're kind of actively hurting you, especially if you have an innings limit, because then your league kind of becomes K-9 at that point. Uh, so you have to be careful with that. If he's striking out five or something, it's just too much contact. It's not that you have to have strikeouts to be successful, but you just start letting the ball get put into play too often, you're going to allow hits. Luck's just going to go against you at some point to where you're going to allow too many hits. But I think I think a Mejia can be probably, I would say maybe a tick better or, or very comparable to Alcantara, but maybe a tick better. He is coming from the left side. He does have four pitches, solid control. Uh, it's definitely either a stream type or an AL only sort of piece but certainly somebody to keep on your radar, especially because in AL only, if you can get a guy who's taking a turn every fifth day and he's not hurting you, that's a big asset. It certainly is. Uh, over in the National League, how about this blast from the past? Matt Kane outduels Ty Block for the fifth rotation slot. Matt Kane's a guy that everybody remembers. Is there a danger here that we're going to remember the great seasons and overvalue this guy? Yeah, I would be careful at, at, at judging on the name value there because we, we do remember Matt Kane as somebody who – uh, served us well. I'm sure a lot of people listening had him on their team at some point. Been around long enough to where everybody could have had had him on a team at one point where he put up 200 solid innings for you. But you know, it, it, injuries have really eaten up the back end of his career here, and it's kind of upsetting. He's only 32 years old. It's not like he's some uh, you know crusty veteran at this point. Well, I mean, he's got a lot of innings, but he it seemed like he should have had a better decline. A phase where where he was still very useful, maybe a high three ZRA guy as opposed to the a sub three ERA guy that he was for several years in, in San Francisco. And it just goes to show you that that park, while it's certainly very helpful, it can't it doesn't automatically make you good. So even if you know even when you're having success in that park, you're still very much contributing to the success. I think we've seen um, the velocity come down a little bit, and injuries are the biggest deal with Matt Cain. He's a wait-and-see guy. He's got to show me something. And if I miss out, you know, if I, if I wait too long, if, if I want to see three, four starts, which these days is a long time before getting somebody, um, if, if I want to see that and, and somebody else picks him up, more power to them. But I'm not, I'm not going to jump before seeing something from Matt Cain. And similarly, Paul, we had Brandon McCarthy get a spot in the Dodgers rotation, a serviceable pitcher when he's been on the field. But he isn't often on the field, nor for long. So how much should the obvious injury risk of a guy like Brandon McCarthy mitigate our willingness to spend some fab money or a top waivers claim to get him? The, the beauty is it's generally built into the price. The fact that he's on waivers already uh, kind of builds that into, into McCarthy's price. But yeah, I would not go crazy with my fab. That's a valuable resource. And generally speaking, we talk about April pickups. Uh, uh, you know, being more aggressive on them because you're going to get a full season, uh, uh, you know, ostensibly, obviously there's no guarantees. But with McCarthy specifically, we feel we can feel pretty confident that even though we're bidding on him in April, we're not going to get a full season. It's just not something that's been in the cards for him. Uh, health has eluded him. He did have the 200-inning season in 2014, which was cool, but uh, 23 and 40 the last two years since then, I just don't see how you would bet on a 33-year-old who's had major, major, major health issues throughout his career to, to bounce back and be even 150-inning guys. So make a, make a tempered bid um, where you're expecting maybe 80 innings, and, and however you would value somebody who you might get 80 solid innings from, that's how you should value Brandon McCarthy. Because if, you, if you're thinking you're going to get somebody you can rely on for 
more than really a month, month and a half, think you're fooling yourself. Now, if you do happen to bid on him like uh, like that and, and he does last longer, then you got yourself a little bit of a boon. But if you're paying that freight up front, you're asking to be disappointed. Well, Paul, during the season, I ask our expert guests to talk about their studs and duds for the balance of the year. And typically what this means is players you're a little higher on or a little lower on than the crowd. So someplace where you're out of step, and I have a hunch that's not going to be a problem here. Uh, Maybe let's start with the studs. Uh, In the American League, who's a hitter you think you like more than most? In the AL, I like like a lot of different players. Uh, It it ends up becoming a thing where, okay, just pick one that you really like. I'm still pretty dug in on uh, Jonathan Scope at second base. I, I just I, I think that second base was really deep this year, and I, it allowed me to kind of take him very late, uh, relatively speaking, and, and just plug in that power. I still think there's some potential evolution to his game to kind of get back to where he was in the minors with regards to his strikeout and walk ratios. And if he does, if he brings the strikeouts down a little bit and, and just adds a little bit more walk. You know, you don't have to add walks for the sake of adding them, but to get that on-base percentage up to be a bit more selective, I still think we could see 35 homers from somebody like Jonathan Scope. So I, I was pretty intrigued by him this year, and I was still getting him in a lot of different leagues. And in the National League, who's a stud hitter you like? The pick, the official pick, is going to be Marcelo Zuna, who I really, really like. I wrote him up in this year's forecaster and uh, highlighted the fact that he was having his breakout season. Uh, it, it was all coming together. 30-plus homer sort of season was in the works, and then he had a wrist injury that didn't send him on the DL. It was, a, it was one of those few-day things, but it seemed to linger the rest of the year. There, there was a sharp decline in his numbers from the point of that it, wrist injury on, and that's not surprising. Wrist injuries can sap power. Uh, it all it kind of fits. It's not, it's not a huge surprise. And I think that that derailed his season. Uh, I think a, a fully healthy Marcelo Zuna is a, a 35 homer candidate. That would be a total breakout from from some of the stuff that we've seen. We can still see growth. Um, he struggles a little bit against righties, like he's, he has a right hander himself and he crushes lefties. But I think his defense will keep him in the lineup. So I'm still really stoked on Marcelo Zuna out in Miami. And moving to the mound, how about an American League pitcher that you think you're higher on than most other analysts? Boy, how much time you got? Because uh, I, I could give you, I could give you several on there. But I will, I will land on on James Paxton, who I mentioned a little bit earlier. Lance McCullers would have been one, but we've already talked about him. Paxton again. I know he was a, a hot ticket that a lot of folks were interested in, um, and, and so he was he was one of those sleepers that was on everybody's list. So he, he was a, what I call wide awake sleeper. And yet I still thought he came at a, at a relatively reasonable price in a lot of my drafts. And, and yet I was still higher on him, ready to take the, the leap before others, uh, just ahead of his pick 150 average. This is a guy who, who made a mechanical change last year, James Paxton, and it yields both velocity and, and control, and you just don't usually see that. Usually you see changes that, that afford one or the other. And through one start, we see that the velocity is still there, and it's only six innings, but we can only go start to start. I think the big factor right now is going to be health. Even last year, 121 innings, that, that was a career high for him. He's a 28-year-old. So this isn't some young buck who, you know, we can watch his innings build up. It's, it's do or die time with the, uh, with the innings. We've got to see a full buck 80 or more. But I've always said that I'll bet on a skill set when injury's the last piece to come together as opposed to the other way around. I don't want to have to bet on the guy who I'm saying, well, if he does X, Y, and Z, these three changes, then his skills are going to be great. I like the guy who's already got the skills 
who, if he can find some health, um, is going to be a total beast. And I think that's absolutely the case with James Paxton this year. And who's a stud for you among the National League pitching ranks? Out there, uh, again, tough, tough to kind of pare down the, the, the choices I want to make, but I'm going to go ahead and go with Taiwan Walker, a guy that I've definitely been higher on than most. I know he's going to the national, uh, uh, going to Arizona, which has some worry because that is a tougher, much tougher ballpark than Seattle. But he has all, it is also the National League from the American League, so it's mitigated a little bit by the fact that he's going to face the pitcher as opposed to the DH. So you kind of uh, maybe it's a little bit of a negative, but it's not the negative that some people think because you got to cancel out pitchers along with uh, for, for the park there. Plus, they're putting in a humidor. Maybe that helps him. Now, the humidor hasn't really changed things much in, in Coors Field, so I don't know that it's going to change things a whole lot in Arizona on the, in the aggregate, but with individual pitchers, it could help certain ones if they can grip their slider better or something like that. And so, you know, he, Taiwan Walker is somebody who could be helped by it. Didn't have an amazing first start, but six innings, four runs. Oh, seven strikeouts, that's what I'm intrigued by. Home runs were a major issue last year, in the second half especially. I think he had like a 2.1 homer per nine rate. And then we learned in the offseason that the, the foot tendonitis that he missed time with uh, actually ended up being 10 bone spurs in his foot. And, and these were no joke. And so to have 10 bones, to have one seems like it would be awful. To have 10 in your foot, your land foot, I think it really explains why he struggled in the second half and kind of gives us something to look at and say, well, that's fixed now. You should certainly have the, uh, the, the, the wherewithal and, and, and the ability to kind of now fix that home run issue. And so I do expect those home runs to come down for Taiwan Walker, even though he is going out to Arizona. And I think the, the skills in the arsenal have always been there for a breakout. So I think the 24-year-old is going to have a really nice season. Paul Sporer's studs, Jonathan Scope of Baltimore, Marcelo Zuna of Miami, James Paxson of Seattle, and Taiwan Walker of the Arizona Diamondbacks. Let's move over to the duds, Paul. And uh, in the American League, who's a hitter you think is and is going to stay overrated? I'm not a huge Mark Trumbo guy. and It burned me last year. I, I, I got to admit, I got to give, give him the hat tip where, where, he, where he deserves it because he's done this thing before where he started off so hot and you just kind of wait for the other shoe to drop. And the other shoe did not drop last year. He led baseball with 47 home runs, so kudos to him. But, uh, and, he is, and he's staying in, in Baltimore, and so that's a great environment. But I just didn't like where he was being drafted, and so I, I, thought, I thought he was a bit overdrafted. I just don't know how he's that much different than, say, Jose Bautista, who went like 30, 40 picks after him, or even somebody like a Miguel Sano, who hasn't done it yet but has that same sort of skill set. So uh, Mark Trumbull's just been somebody that I've always been a little bit suspect on, and I did not want to pay the freight this year. In the, in National, the National League, League who's a hitter you feel the same way about? Very similarly, it's Kyle Schwarber. And again, it's not that I don't respect the, the, the power talent. It's definitely there, but I just feel like this guy's been overrated from the jump. Now, the one aspect that can change that, of course, is NL or excuse me, Yahoo Leagues, uh, he does have catcher. We're not talking about that. And uh, because that, that's a completely different factor. But going into the season without the catcher eligibility, I thought he was overdrafted. I, I, I do give back a little bit to where I say if you have like one game eligibility or five game eligibility, you could get that catcher at some point. But I still thought he was overdrafted. Again, in comparison to the heavy power guys like Matt Kemp, Jose Bautista, Chris Davis with a K, um, and again, even Miguel Sano. I don't know how Kyle Schwarber is different from those guys, and yet he's going two, three, 
sometimes four rounds ahead of those guys. It just doesn't make sense to me. I don't know where uh, what what people are looking at. Like he did hit two forty six in in his only season that we've had. That's the thing too. He's only been around for five minutes, and yet we're acting like he's this established guy. I respect the power. I think he's a good player, but I don't think he's a superstar in the making in terms of fantasy because he strikes out way too much. And unless he cuts that strikeout rate, there's no way that you're getting better than like a 255, 260 batting average. And sure, 35 homers with a 250 is very useful. But again, it's what all those other guys do too, and they were drafted much later. Also, also, guys, guys like Kyle Schwarber worry me for this reason. He's a bad, he's a bad defender, defender no matter where they put him, and that's a real concern to me. I think he's a designated hitter waiting to happen. Uh, let's, move let's move back to the mound. In, 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 the in, the in the American League, who's a pitcher you think you like less than most? An AL pitcher that I'm not as hyped on would probably be, again, tough to kind of pare down the choices here. So I'll go with Rick Porcello. That's probably an obvious one. I know a lot of folks are, are you know, down on him compared to his draft stock. I think the Cy Young did raise his value, though, so not everybody's down on him because he was still going you know, top 20, top 25, top 30 starting pitchers, and I don't think he should necessarily be that high. I respect some of the changes that he made. This one's a tough one for me because I'm a Detroit Tigers fan, and I loved Rick Porcello coming up. I always thought that he was going to be uh, kind of a stud at some point. So to win a Cy Young, that's like, hey – you know, you were kind of right not not to backpat myself because I didn't I didn't predict it last year when it would have mattered to have it on my fantasy team. But he was somebody that I always saw more talent in uh, than than his numbers were generating, and so I, I do respect the fact that he had an excellent year last year. But there weren't there weren't major skill changes. There there wasn't something that was like wow, he's a completely different guy now, uh, especially compared to his 2015 season. So I just don't think that a low three ZRA is necessarily in the cards in the AL East. Um, and in Fenway specifically, I think I think he can settle in in the mid threes. Now, the one thing I do really like about Porcello is the fact that I do think those innings are going to be something that are there, 200-plus innings. We can see that out of him now for the next three, four years. I w- it wouldn't surprise me at all. And that kind of mitigates his strikeout rate being a little bit blah. You know, 21% last year, 7.6 per nine. But when you log 223 innings, you still get 189 strikeouts, so the raw number is still very good. But uh, I just thought he was a bit overdrafted. I would have taken so many more guys ahead of him, including the aforementioned James Paxton, even though one's coming off of Cy Young and the other only threw 121 innings. I just prefer the skills. Um, and I didn't have to take him ahead of Porcello, too. That's the beauty is I got him much cheaper. So I'm just not as hyped on Porcello as some, as some seem to be. I'll tell you, I'll tell you I was happy to get him back. back. I had him last year for 8 bucks in my American League only, and I got him for 17 I think, this year. And my way of looking at a Paul is this. Yeah, I thought so. He was a $30 pitcher last year. If he loses a third of his value, which could be with maybe a few, some fewer wins, maybe a little bit of an increase in ERA, if he loses a third of his value, still a $20 pitcher on money ahead, he has to really endure something of a collapse to not be worth 17 bucks coming out of a $30 season. Or am I am I misanalyzing this? No, no, no. I think you're right there. And as I said, that $17, I think, is a good price there. I thought he was valued more in drafts as, as a 20-something dollar guy. And I guess, you know, losing a third would, would maybe still have him there. I just didn't want to take necessarily that risk when wins were such a key factor in his deal. Now, did you say you got him in an AL only? Yeah, that's, yeah, right. that's right. That changes the scope for me, too. I actually value him quite a bit more in AL only. 
Um, and so not, not to walk or go against my, my own pick there, but in an AL only, I value him much higher because those innings are so valuable to get 200 plus innings of, of something that you can bank on pretty, pretty reasonably for, I think even at like a worst case, uh, he would be like 200 plus of the 380 ERA, which would not kill you. The volume alone would help you. I know he had a 492 in 2015, but there was injury. So if we're talking, if we're predicting health, to get him to 200 plus innings, I think Porcello is at least at least a 380 guy, um, and I'm not even necessarily. That's not my projection for him. I just think that you can at least get that in an AL only. That's very valuable. So I like what you did there. I just I thought in mixed league scenarios, especially like 12 12 team where the uh, the pool is going to be richer, I'd rather take my shot on somebody who can be completely game changing with their skills, not just with their win total. And that's why the Paxtons and the McCullers and even like a Matt Harvey who was starting to get his uh, velocity back at the end of the year, I, would, I was wanting to take chances on them instead. And finally, and finally in the National League, who's a pitcher you think you're lower on than most of your colleagues? It's Jake Arrieta for sure. And, it, and it's, honestly, it's less about skills and more about health at this point. Uh, you know, he certainly uh, is uh, on his way to making me look foolish already with the, uh, with the, first, with the first go. Go of it in, in his first start there. He looked really sharp. His stuff was devastating. I know his velocity was way down, but there's a little bit of quirkiness with velocities right now. I'm not really sure how much we can put into any of it. They're, they're measuring it differently uh, now. This is usually on the positive end. If you see a big, if you see a big velocity spike, you should look at it a little bit uh, crookedly because the, with the measuring that they're doing now, it, it's going to yield bigger values that aren't necessarily quote unquote true. Because basically what you're getting now, just for example, at, at Fangraphs, um, you're going to get comparisons with the new measurement compared to the way they used to measure it. So uh, it, it, the, the difference is about a plus one mile per hour that you've got to kind of adjust. Well, if you do that adjustment, then Jake Arrieta is actually down four miles per hour. So again, it's a little bit wonky. I don't know what to make of it velocity-wise. My major concern with him is health. This is a guy who's a late bloomer. Be, mainly because of health, but also because of development in Baltimore. I think they have a really big issue developing pitchers, so getting out of there might be the actual ticket for Gossman to, to finally break out. But, uh, you know, at age 29, he pops 229 innings. Last year he was at 197. This guy has just not been the model of health. I don't know that his body can stand up to the rigors of 200-plus inning seasons regularly. And, and we've only seen the one. He's going to be 31 years old. Health is my biggest concern with Arietta, but I also think that uh, you can't ignore a doubling of his walk rate last year. Some of it might have been purposeful. Chris Liss and I were, were discussing this on Sirius. He's a guy who won't give in because he knows he can get you out or get the next guy out, so I do respect that part of the walk rate, but he still doubled his walk rate. Like I could see adding a few walks to that, but doubling your rate seems a little bit alarming. So I'm just kind of off Jake Arietta as a bona fide lockdown stud and everybody else seemed to be still drafting him as such. Paul Spores duds. In the American League, Mark Trumbo, and in the National League, Kyle Schwarber on the hitting side. His dud pitchers, Rick Horsello of Boston and Jake Arrieta of the Cubs. Paul, this has been a gas, and I know our listeners are now really curious about where they can find out more from you. How can they keep track of Paul Sporer? Best way is to jump on Twitter, at Sporer, S-P-O-R-E-R. I'm over at Fangraphs. That's where I primarily... Uh, do my work three to four times a week writing, three to four times a week podcasting. We're getting into the, the regular season flow um, j just this week, so you, you should be able to catch me there. And then I do contribute to the Daily Notes 
with, with regular guest here, Todd Zola, uh, at ESPN. And I do the Tuesday edition of that. And I've been writing a couple articles for the Insider over there at ESPN as well. So, again, at Spore, that's the best way to follow everything. I post out my stuff there. But, um, yeah. All right, Paul Spore, thanks very much. I expected this was going to be a lot of fun, and you exceeded my expectations. I'm going to call you a stud and not a dud for this show. I really do appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for having me on. I've been a longtime listener. I love the podcast, and I'm very happy to have been on. Paul Sporer writes for Fangraphs and hosts the fantasy baseball podcast Sleeper and the Bust. Our Baseball HQ commentaries are next. Stay with us on Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Ray Murphy, and I'd like to take a minute to explain why we call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to set you up for success in your drafts with great information across all the major fantasy formats. Get ready for your draft or auction now with news analysis, prospect coverage, and player performance validation. And use our valuation tools and cheat sheets so you don't just get ready. You feel ready and confident that you'll dominate your competition at the draft table. Here's PD with a look at just a little of what's on BaseballHQ.com right now. In playing time tomorrow, Mike Shears looks at the American League Central, including the Twins' designated hitter situation. In the speculator column, some guy named Ray Murphy offers long shots to lead their leagues and win the top awards. And in the Big Hurt Injury Analysis column, Matt Cederholm looks at Roberto Asuna, Trevor Rosenthal, Jorge Soler, and more hurt players. And that's just some of the great content at BaseballHQ.com. We're adding 30 articles every week to help keep you on top of your game. If you want to invest in your fantasy baseball success, we have a couple of options for you. The full year subscription to Baseball HQ is currently $75, which includes all the articles and tools, plus membership in our HQ forums, the message boards where serious fantasy baseball players like you gather to exchange ideas and tips. We also have a draft prep subscription option with all the same privileges through April 30th for just $39. And if you enter the promo code HQRadio at checkout, we'll knock a five spot off the price just to thank you for listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Come join us at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It's BaseballHQ.com. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have Master Notes. And leading off, it's our weekend pitcher matchups report. Matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero and based on our pure quality starts metric. Ratings of one or better are strong starts. Ratings of minus one or worse are strong sits. Between the ones, that's what we call the wild card range, toss-ups. And you'll have to consider those based on your own risk appetite. Now with a marquee matchup, Chicago White Sox left-hander Jose Quintana at home Sunday versus Minnesota, and a Sunday surprise matchup with Colorado Southpaw Tyler Anderson at home to the Dodgers, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. Welcome to the first full weekend of Major League Baseball's 2017 season. Each Friday in the weekend matchup segment will feature one marquee matchup and one Saturday or Sunday surprise, then conclude with some quick highlights from our pitcher matchup ratings for the rest of the weekend. Remember, in April, our matchup ratings rely on performance metrics and team statistics from 2016. Now let's throw out the first pitch. 
Assuming winter weather in the Midwest has no additional impact on the schedule, this weekend's marquee matchup is Chicago White Sox Southpaw Jose Quintana. Quintana is at home in the south side of Chicago on Sunday with a matchup rating of 135. He faces the Minnesota Twins' Irvin Santana, who has a matchup rating of minus 031. The Twins were the worst team in the majors last season, losing 103 games. They tied for the worst road record, too, losing 52 away from home. They also tied for the most runs allowed per game and had the second-worst run differential, scoring an average of a run less than they allowed per game. The White Sox ranked around 20th in the majors for those categories, with the exception of their home record, where they tied for 12th at nine games over 500. When we combine Jose Quintana's straight-A reliability grades with a home start against a weak team, we get our first marquee matchup of 2017. At home in 2016, Quintana pitched 97 innings over 14 starts, averaging nearly 7 innings per start. He walked only 14 and struck out 88 for a whip of 095, a dominance rate of 8.1 strikeouts per 9, and an ERA of 277. Against Minnesota in 2016, Quintana had 5 games started. 3 were PQS dominant, with 2 PQS 4s and a PQS 5, and 2 were PQS decent, with 1 PQS 2 and 1 PQS 3. Over the past three seasons, Quintana could be called Mr. Consistency. His innings pitched have ranged from 200 to 208. His strikeouts from 177 to 181. His expected ERA from 351 to 398. His control rate from 1.9 to 2.3 walks per nine. His dominance rate from 7.7 to 8.0 strikeouts per nine his first pitch strike rate from 65% to 69%, and his swinging strike rate from 8% to 9%. Quintana's base performance value, or BPV, ranged from 101 to 112, and his base performance index, or BPX, from 119 to 134, meaning his skills were 19% to 34% better than the average starting pitcher. Jose Quintana is our inaugural marquee matchup for 2017. Yet Quintana's matchup rating of 135 plays second fiddle to our first Sunday surprise for the 2017 season. This weekend's highest matchup rating is 138, and it belongs to Colorado Rockies left-hander Tyler Anderson? If it's not enough of a surprise to pick a starter in Coors Field, Anderson goes up against the perennial NL West division champion Los Angeles Dodgers. They counter with Kenta Maeda, though his matchup rating is a meager minus 073. The Dodgers had big problems against Southpaw starters last season. L.A. posted the majors' worst on-base plus slugging percentage, or OPS, against left-handed pitching at 622. The Dodgers were two games under 500 against lefties and five games under 500 on the road. The 2016 Rockies were three games over 500 at home and scored more runs than any other team, save the one saying goodbye to David Ortiz. Colorado was two games under 500 versus right-handers and an even 500 against teams at or above 500. This matchup is by no means the mismatch we might have expected on the surface. The Rockies drafted Tyler Anderson from the University of Oregon with the 20th pick in the first round of the 2011 draft. He made his major league debut in 2016, firing 114 innings and posting a ground ball rate of 51%. 78 innings of Anderson's work came in his 12 starts at Coors Field. Anderson's home record was 5-2 with an ERA of 3, a whip of 126, a control rate of 2.1 walks per 9, a dominance rate of 7.8 strikeouts per 9, and a command ratio of 3.7 strikeouts per walk. He did not seem intimidated by either the thin air in Denver or by the Dodgers. 
Against LA, Anderson pitched 20 innings over three starts, posting two PQS dominant fours and a PQS decent two. In 19 games started with the Rockies, Anderson produced base performance values above 100 in three of his four months. Colorado's Tyler Anderson is this weekend's Sunday surprise. Going with any starting pitcher at Coors Field is a risky proposition, so let's begin our wrap-up with some other BaseballHQ.com risk-reward wildcard matchup ratings in the National League. Both the Mets' not-so-secret sleeper, Robert Gesellman, on Saturday, and ace Noah Syndergaard on Sunday are worthy speculations at home against the Marlins. In the American League, risk-reward wildcards worth a second look include even more pairings, both starters in both games of two series, Kansas City at Houston and Toronto at Tampa Bay. On Saturday, the Royals' Danny Duffy faces the Astros' Dallas Keuchel and the Jays' Aaron Sanchez goes against the Rays' Chris Archer. On Sunday, Kansas City's Nate Carnes is paired with Houston's Lance McCullers and Tampa Bay's Jake Odorizzi opposes Toronto's Marco Estrada. Our matchup ratings say the potential rewards outweigh the risks for each of them. Our all-avoid American League outings scheduled for Saturday include Detroit's Jordan Zimmerman at home against the Red Sox, Minnesota's other prize rotation rookie Adalberto Mejia making his initial Major League start on the road in Chicago, and Oakland's Kendall Graven at Texas. On Sunday, stay away from Detroit's Daniel Norris at home against the Red Sox and both Oakland's Sean Manaya and the Rangers' Martin Perez in Texas. For the National League on Saturday, our early matchup ratings shun Atlanta's post-type breakout candidate Michael Fultonevich for his start at Pittsburgh, Cincinnati's comeback player of the year candidate Bronson Arroyo in St. Louis, and Milwaukee's rotation replacement Tommy Malone facing the World Series champion Chicago Cubs at Wrigley Field. On Sunday, we're advising against Cincinnati's opening day starter Scott Feldman in St. Louis and Miami's Edinson Volquez at the Mets City Field in New York. Our final first weekend's one to wonder about is Sunday's interleague matchup. We're advising strong consideration for Cleveland's Corey Kluber, even though he's in the hitter's haven of Arizona's Chase Field. Best of luck to all of you for a fun and fulfilling fantasy season. We look forward to helping you stay on top of your standings all year long. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a Baseball HQ analyst and has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio Podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about using behavioral economics in fabbing. My last Master Notes applied theories from the field of behavioral economics to fantasy valuation and drafting. Since those Master Notes got a nicely positive response, the tomatoes being thrown at me were much fresher and more suitable for salads. I'm going to return to the theories because I think they can be usefully applied to another aspect of fantasy play, fab bidding. As I noted in those earlier master notes, we like to believe that when it comes to our leagues, we behave like sharks, cold, emotionless machines, always making decisions that optimize our chance of surviving in fantasy baseball's perilous waters. Indeed, consistently successful players are often called sharks by their league mates. All right, that's enough with the shark analogy. The problem is that most of us are not great white uh, cartilaginous ocean predators. As humans, we're prone to economic decision-making errors that result from our emotional responses, especially to risk. And that's the whole idea behind behavioral economics. The first area that can flummox our rational thinking is the money illusion. That's an inability to separate the number that's printed on money from its actual purchasing power. I have an example of this right in my own home. 
When Mrs. Masternotes is shopping online, she sometimes finds herself looking at a website in a foreign country, where the prices are, naturally enough, presented in the local currency. These localized prices frequently discombobulate Mrs. Masternotes. Say she sees a handbag, she knows it's worth about a hundred Canadian dollars. When she sees that same handbag on a Japanese site, priced at 9,000 yen, she scoffs that anyone would pay that much, just because 9,000 is a much bigger number than 100. And may I say it's a good thing Mrs. Masternotes never shopped for handbags in Weimar, Germany, or post-independent Zimbabwe. But if she sees the handbag on a European site where it's priced at 80 euros, she complains that the bargain these lucky Europeans are getting. As a result of the money illusion, Mrs. Masternotes would happily pay a reduced price of 80 euros from a store in Portugal for that handbag that costs 100 bucks in Canada, because 80 is a smaller number than 100. Of course, if you convert Canadian dollars to euros at the prevailing rate, the true value of the handbag is actually around 70 euros. So Mrs. Masternotes and all those unfortunate Portuguese are actually paying more. The money illusion can be made worse by anchoring, which I discussed last week. That's the phenomenon in which people tend to anchor their expectations of price to fixed values, and then they resist moving away from those expectations, even if the actual value of the money is different. This same disconnect can happen with fab bidding, because almost all leagues set their fab budgets at some number of dollars different from the $260 we typically use for auctions. That's the money illusion. We get used to these values based on that $260 base, the values we see in magazines and website valuations, and sometimes we do a poor job recalibrating the value of our fab dollars. In other words, like Mrs. Masternotes, we don't properly adjust for what is really just a foreign exchange rate. How this affects FAB depends on whether the FAB budget is higher or lower than $260. If the FAB amount is higher, prices will naturally rise, but often they won't rise enough. For example, take a player like Nori Aoki. He was projected around 10 bucks or so in the preseason projections, based of course on a $260 auction budget. But in a $1,000 FAB league, Aoki's worth about $38. That's just the currency exchange. But owners will experience psychological resistance to that price. They don't want to pay what feels like Josh Donaldson money to roster Nori Aoki. An owner with this money illusion could be plagued with recurrent underbidding and as a result could miss out on free agent players he really needs. Conversely, if the FAB amount is lower than the league auction salary, prices should naturally be lower, and they typically are. In a league with a $100 FAB budget, that $10 Aoki is worth less than 4 So the owner in this league could find herself chronically overspending and depleting her FAB budget too quickly. Little wonder that BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler found many years ago that players in $100 FAB leagues tend to overpay for players in properly adjusted terms than owners in $1,000 leagues. Another set of behavioral quirks was identified by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, the stars of Michael Lewis's book, The Undoing Project. They packaged these irrational behaviors and called them prospect theory. And a key finding in prospect theory is that people are more averse to the prospect of loss than they are attracted to the prospect of gain. In many experiments, subjects were offered their choice, a guaranteed amount of money or the chance to flip a coin to more than double that guaranteed money or get nothing. 
Even though the expected value of making a bet was always more than the guaranteed amount, the great majority of subjects opted to keep the sure thing. They wanted to avoid the loss. And you'll find the same psychological desire not to lose also occurs when you're making fantasy baseball trades. Now think about this in terms of fab bidding. The basic proposition is either you keep your fab money, the guaranteed amount, or basically to flip a coin on the free agent player. There are two risks of loss. First, the player acquired through the fab bid might just be a flop. Or, the owner might miss out later when a better free agent comes along. A newly anointed closer, for example, or a prized minor league prospect getting called up. Think of Gary Sanchez last year. Or, in only leagues, a star player might cross over from the other league, like Jonathan Lucroy did last year. But rationalizing hoarding fab seems irrational. Even in deep only leagues, an owner who has started with any kind of decent roster and hasn't been absolutely decimated by injuries will only end up fabbing a limited number of free agents. So we would expect several hoarding owners to end up with some unspent fab, especially in $1,000 leagues. I play in a $1,000 American League only league, and every year plenty of owners finish with unspent fab. The trick in all of this is adjusting our behaviors to avoid the negative effects. In other words, to offset the losses caused by being irrational, by being rational. First, focus on understanding the actual value of possible free agents under your league rules. And that means converting player values from the $260 base to whatever your fab budget is. If algebra isn't your thing, the basic formula is in the online article of this Master Notes, free at BaseballHQ.com. Then even when you have this better adjusted value, you should let it inform your decision making, not anchor your decision making. Fab is not the same game as the auction, and you need to approach it with different expectations and reactions. We talked about Nori Aoki. Is he worth $10, $3, $38? In fact, Aoki's actual value, or any free agent's actual value, is derived from the likelihood he will move you in the standings. In that way, it's also, again, like trading in fantasy baseball. You should always be willing to lose a trade on dollar value or name value to land a player who will help you move in the categories. So if Aoki will be replacing an outfielder who's going to be out of action for months, or if Aoki's speed will get you four points in stolen bases, you should be willing to bid more aggressively than whatever you think his true value is. On the other hand, if Aoki is a temporary two- or three-week filler, or if you know you can't move in stolen bases, Aoki's not worth that much to you. In fact, for most short-term replacements, it's a better idea to put in a lowish bid on the top available guy, just in case nobody else bids, and then put in a bunch of minimum bids on available warm bodies. Also, remember you're competing for free agents, and some of your competitors will be rational. Yes, sharks. If your league commissioner service allows you to review fab bids, and most of them do, check those bids every week. Find out who bids aggressively, find out who's more conservative, and take a gander to see which other teams might value potential targets as highly as you do because they have the same long-term injury needs or category management needs. Try to be rational. Calculate the risks, the probabilities of gain and the probabilities of loss. Don't fixate on what happens if the free agent doesn't pan out, and don't bid on a pie-in-the-sky possibility of gain, like maybe Nori Aoki will hit 21 home runs in four months. In particular, accept that a successful bid now could cost you a shot at a better player later. 
First, it just doesn't happen that often. And second, if you commit to hoarding, you have to out-hoard everybody in your league. And even if you think you have the hammer, you could lose it if your league allows your competitors to trade fab dollars or get fab refunds by waiving players. Plus, acting early pays an additional dividend. You get more games with the good player on your roster than you'll get with a great player who comes over only at the deadline. The biggest risk is leaving your fab on the table at the end of the year. Spend that money like it means something right now, because almost every time, it really does. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 7th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 13 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Paul's a very smart guy. He really knows his stuff, and we were glad to have him on the show. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson, and our pitcher matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our feature guest expert will be the fantasy baseball Zen master, Lore Michaels from MastersBall.com. That's Lore Michaels on the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk to you next week. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.